G'day fish folks, AOS Coach here, and we are talking all things Iden of Deepkin. I'm really excited to speak to uh, my guest, someone who's been on my radar for a while, and finally we have a great opportunity to chat. Uh, I am here with Hazel Moon, who has been flipping the tides and taking souls at many great tournaments like Ragnarok, uh, Warhammer World, London GT, uh, Blackout, uh, is in the Six Nations team for England, and I'm really excited to find out around IDK because, as Hazel's going to share with us in a second, there's some really interesting things happening in the ether sea that um, I think a lot of us weren't really aware of, you know, sitting on our little farms at our beaches and uh, something's been brewing under the sea. And um, whether you are an IDK player and uh, you want to get better or you're someone who's maybe getting into IDK, I think this is going to be a really great chat. And uh, I think you get a lot of wisdom. But before we get into it, uh, I'll let Hazel introduce herself and explain a little bit more about um, the background and, and why IDK. Hi, Coach. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, and hello to all the listeners out there. Uh, you might have talked to some of you in the chat and talked fish and stuff in the past. So it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I'm. You know, I've been playing competitive Warhammer for a couple of years now. Most of that has been with Eidoneth. I've dipped my toes into Ogres a little bit. Um, but, you know, Eidoneth are the army for me. They're the army that I've had a lot of fun with at tournaments, whether that's been success or not so much success. Um, and playing a huge range of different lists with them. They're just a wonderful, wonderful army. And I'm excited because I think, you know, watch out beaches are closed because shark season has been declared and we're really looking good now it's funny you mentioned that because i remember looking at john anderson over in the us and he was running a lot of sharks and i'm like okay there's something crazy going on here and then i've been watching kind of how the meta has been shifting and this is not just going to be the, the the shark show i'm sure we'll talk talk turtles oh my god also yeah. There's a lot of cool things happening in IDK, but a really interesting stat that I want to start the show off with is IDK, despite people talking about Corn and Seraphon and, you know, Slanesh and OBR, IDK has a 54% win rate. And not just that, I was watching the representation rate and over the last couple of months, you know, at tournaments, you'd see about a 2% of representation rate of people who'd bring IDK to tournaments. In the last month, that is spiked to a 5%, which is mm -hmm. on par with some of these top armies, which is really fascinating. And I wonder, and I mentioned earlier, there's something brewing in the ether sea, and I think it's a great time to talk IDK. Maybe yeah. you want to share a little bit. I mean, you know, we're definitely rising up from those briny depths and, you know, causing the terror of the tides to come onto the shore. We've got so many good things that have been in the book for a while where the points costs have just been a bit too high to get all of that good stuff into that one list. And we, what we've seen is, you know, over the past kind of three balance changes, just gradual little points reductions of 10 or 20 points. But that has kind of built up to the point now where, you know, for instance, the Leviad on the Turtle is 100 points less than it was when the book first came out. So you're getting just so much more bang for your buck. Um, we've also seen some FAQ changes, particularly to sharks that we will, you know, we can talk about in more detail. Um, 
but I think it's really important to highlight those stats as you've done because, um, you know, if you look at MetaWatch from the start of the year and the previous GHB, or if you look at, you know, the TSN stats and what they were doing at the close of the last GHB, I don't know if we're not in a good place. You know, we were really kind of around that 40%, you know, win rate area um, of an army that needed a bit of love. So that change that has been quite drastic in the past few months and maybe surprising to some people as well, because it's not necessarily an army you would associate with this GHB when you're just looking at, you know, the rules in there. There's a lot to unpack there. And this is actually a really exciting conversation because, yeah, let's rewind to when the Battle Tome very first came out. The I, the, the turtle was 500 points. Mm, yeah, she was, yeah. The Eidolons were like 400. Like they were quite expensive. There was a lot of expensive. And there was this tiny window of excitement where Thralls got two-inch range. And we went, yay, finally. And then like a month later, it's like, oh, Bounty Hunters and Thralls just disappeared off the meta completely. Mm. I mean, that's really interesting because I think, you know, Thralls really haven't really had a chance to shine because of that fact. Um, you know, there was that two-inch reach change. I remember when that box came out. I think it was Fury of the Deep, maybe, with the Fire yeah. Slayers and the Deepkin. You know, we've got, we had Thrallmaster coming out who had some amazing buffs. Um, you know, minus one to wound, in my opinion, is the best buff in Age of Sigma you can get on anything. Um, you know, the Exploding Sixes to hit, which is, you know, when they when there's ways to make them hit on twos innately, you're you're kind of hitting on ones basically. You should hit with all your attacks if you're hitting on twos with exploding sixes on average. Um but it just didn't happen as you say because you know that Galatian infantry battle plan was actually really punishing to those Galatian infantry rather than beneficial. Um so I think it would be really interesting to see someone you know, if you're a thrill player and you've kind of been sat there like, oh, I don't know, I just don't feel like they're so good. I think now's the time to go out there and try some stuff. Definitely. And, you know, we've we've been through the different um, tides, right? You know, we started off with, with eel spam. It was just eels, eels, eels. We, mm. We've gone through different little varieties at one point. We had the reavers going really hard. Um and, you know, like there's, there's some really interesting things with IDK that we're all going to unpack. But I just, I, I found that 54% win rate really, because no one's talking about it. No one's, everyone's talking about corn, uh, OBR, zombies, uh, you know, in sort of like Grave Lords, you know, Squeak Spam. So, everyone's talking about them. No one's talking IDK. Yet you've been doing really well. Yeah, I think it's um, maybe to our benefit in that we can go under the radar a bit despite being quite strong just because of the fact there are these very prominent armies that have been strong for quite a long time you know gloom spike gets for instance that you mentioned there you know that list which has basically kind of been a variation of the same squig list um has been performing at the top tables for at least a year maybe longer um and games workshop have made some changes but it hasn't really affected them. You know, Soul Blight, ever since that book came out, even with the zombie spam and the gash changing, there are still so many strong lists because that ability to bring models back three away, you know, it's so hard to play around because it's, oh, hey, uh, it's my turn. 
you've got five models in that objective. Uh, yeah, here's 10 skeletons three inches away from you. You can't screen it out, right? So people are always going to do well with it. Um, and I think that's to our benefit because we're in a really good place right now. Um, we're in a good place where we're at the upper end of the balanced armies. You know, if we talk about balance in terms of armies between 45% to 55% win rate, 40, uh, 54%, as you say, is right at the upper cap of that, which puts us in a place where we're less likely to be touched and see significant changes that affect our, our ability to do well, um, but where we're better than most of those other armies that are in that balanced range. Maybe we should cut off the conversation now because if you share all of your insights, we actually might swing into the 60% and then Games Workshop's going to come knocking on our door saying points changes, nerfs. No, it's not going to happen. Or will hey, it? you know, I've got um, a little paranoid theory for you, which is that Games Workshop changed Stonehorn points just to target me because, you know, I started playing them. I won like three events in a row or something, which was insane and I'd never 5-0'd before before I picked them up um, and it was towards the back end of the last GHB I hadn't really seen anyone I mean I don't know if internationally there'd been more but I, I the only ogres lists I'd seen had been the iron blasters um, and the tyrants and stuff and then stonehorns all went up loads of points my whole list became unplayable by about 100 points so you know I've got this feeling that it was Games Workshop personally attacking me that's a joke, All right. Well, well, <laughs> or was it? No. Look, uh, and look, you know, they're they're a good position. We're going to talk about things, and there's one more thing I just want to call out before I get into some of the questions. That um, so I've got some Discord questions, and a lot of uh, very excited uh, people have got some questions for you. And we'll go through the rules. We'll talk about IDK in uh, the current season, and that's probably a really good segue. That you mentioned that this is not a season for you because this is the wizard season. This is about magic and you don't have a lot of magic and you have even less Antorian locuses. You've got priests, you've obviously got the Eidolon wizard, you've got some wizards, but it's not like you have lots of pluses to cast. It's not like you have mm. a deep spell law. It's not like you have Zinch cheaty, cheaty dice. Like it's not really a season where you should be winning. No, um, and just just before I answer that, I just wanted to mention as well, um, I'm at Fishy Hazel in the AOS Coach Discord. Um, so if anyone's watching this back and thinking, oh, damn, I wish I'd asked a question, um, feel free to tag me in the IDK chat and I will do my best to respond to you because I love you all, my fishy brethren. Um, but yes, let's get into the talking about wizards. So it's interesting as well because pers on a personal level, I would say magic is a part of the game I really struggle with. My decision-making around it isn't very good. Um, and on the times that I've tried to play with the new spell law, um, I've blown myself up and killed myself three out of the five games I played. Um, so I think that's kind of shows you, I'm, you know, I'm not your zinch person for sure. Um, yeah. Wizards in IDK. So, there's a couple of things here. We've got two wizards in the book. Um, a new one has just been released technically, which is the Underworld's Warband. Um, I'll touch on that briefly because I don't think the Underworld's Warband is going to see a lot of play. Um, I don't think it's got particularly good rules. Um, it does currently have that you can teleport and move again, um, which 
you know, Games Workshop, well done on once again failing to write you can't move in the movement phase after writing a new teleport spell. Good points, 10 points for that. But, you know, I don't think anyone's going to use it. So just to clarify, we're not going to really talk about um, the Underworld's Warband. So when I'm talking about wizards, we've got the two core wizards, which is your Isharan Tidecaster and your Eidolon of Mathlan Aspect of the Sea. Now, to start with the Eidolon of Mathlan, it's a model that has always been in a bit of a tricky place and has never quite shined. Now, it actually has a really cool command trait that might seem quite appealing to people, which is that when you cast a spell on a seven plus, you can cast another spell. So in theory, you can cast infinite spells or as many spells as you're able to know. The problem we've always had with this is that the spell law that's available to Ideneth is just not good. Now, most armies, they have at least six spells when it comes to their law. Ideneth only have four spells. Um, and of those spells, none of them are particularly useful outside of, in my opinion, Seed of Tides, which is cast on a five, I believe. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> cast on a five. Uh, you can choose either the caster or a hero within a single inch um, and then set them up again anywhere on the board, nine away, um, which is fabulous just because being able to teleport nine away anywhere on the board is one of the best abilities you've got in AOS. Um, cast on a five, very easy, very reasonable can, to get off. Can confirm cast on a five, range of yeah. six. Oh, it's the range of six. Okay. Steed um, of Tides? Steed of Tides? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, okay, uh, so range, here are... Five. Okay, so hero um, within that. Um, but yeah, it's a really good spell, really great. You know, it's the spell that I've always taken whenever I've had a wizard in my Eidneth lists. Um, it's just so useful for a variety of reasons. For example, you put it on your Tidecaster, there's a battle tactic that's control an enemy objective um, or an objective wholly within enemy territory with an Isharan character. If your opponent just forgets to leave a unit back guarding that, cast on a five, I've got a battle tactic and an objective from one character just popping over there. Wonderful spell. Now the other spells in that law, they're just not up to scratch. You've got countercurrent, which is um, a half, I think, run and charge. It might just be charge, um, but it's not great because it's got a fairly short range. Um, you know, units in AOS now, they're so fast that if they want to charge you, they're going to charge you, you know. Um, you look at squigs and how far they can go. You look at corn and how murder lust and then prayer to move. If something wants to get in your face, you know, halving their charge is not going to cut it these days. Um, and I actually can't remember the other two spells. It's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll bring them up on screen. It's, we'll, uh, it's all coming. It's um, all good. So, yeah, sorry if I'm going into it. But, yeah, um, so know. the spell law is not great. The Eidolon of Mathlan aspect of the sea. Now, the ability that that model does have that isn't a bonus cast is reroll casts. Now, reroll casts is, has been historically really good, you know, um, and especially rerolling unbinds as well. It's been a really strong ability. You've seen how people used to take the old cogs that gave you that and um, the Master of Magic to get one of those rerolls. In the current GHB, rerolls are massively nerfed. 
because you can't add primal dice if you do a reroll. So if I roll a three on my Eidolon, I could choose to reroll that and hope I cast the spell, or I can add a primal dice. But I can't do both. So I'm paying for something in points that is actually worse than the primal dice ability that both players are going to get for free, um, or a battalion that you could take to just give you an extra primal dice, right? So it's not very good. The war scroll spells you've got there, you've got one very mediocre spell, which is just D3 mortal wounds or heal D3 mortal wounds. Healing D3 and IDNF isn't really that good because we don't have enough recursion, which is the ability to kind of bring stuff back into the game, or um, other healing, which, you know, you can kind of supplement that with to make it worth it, you know, compare it to, say, KO, where they've got the engine riggers and the um, engine guy, the balloon guy hero and a boat, and they can be healing like 10 plus wounds quite easily every turn into that boat. Healing D3 into a turtle isn't really going to do very much for you. Um, the other spell that the Eidolon has is, in theory, great. Now, this spell is a range of 12 which is a bit problematic, but because we've got Seed of Tides, as we mentioned earlier, you could, in theory, use your first cast to teleport nine away, and then you are in range to cast that second spell. And that second spell lets you uh, either choose D3 units or the same unit D3 times. You can do that because of an FAQ ages ago that said anything, any ability that's written that way, you have the choice. Um, and then you increase the rend of attacks with melee weapons by Eidoneth units into that unit um, by the D3, you know, either one if you choose to split that ability, or it could be up to minus three um, if you roll a three on that D3 on the same unit, which sounds amazing, right? Minus three to save on a unit. Whew. But it's one unit. There's a lot of things that you have to do to make that happen. You have to get that idol on in range. You have to get that cast off. You have to roll well on that D3. And when something like Hawfrost exists, which is like a very similar version of the spell, but just better, that you can put on your own unit, it's just a no-brainer, right? You know, you don't want to pay all those points for that model. The last point to say about the Eidolon is that, again, because of that high wound count that they, they have, it's not an Antorin Locus, so you don't get access to um, those cool spells that you get in, as part of the GHB or the benefits that you get from having an Antorin Locus in your army, like Grand Strats that you can choose um, or uh, ways to score additional points on certain battle plans. Unfortunately, you're also one of these War Scrolls where you pay, like, I guess what you could call like a hybrid tax, where your shooting is okay and your combat is okay and you end up paying a lot more points without actually being good at either of them when maybe you would rather just be really good at shooting or really good at combat so unfortunately for me the Eidolon is not the one it's just not really up to scratch with the current magic rules one short kind of caveat I'll give to you on the Eidolon is that if you are thinking of running Thralls and trying with Thralls, then there is a bravery buff you get from that Eidolon of the Sea. Now, that bravery buff could be quite useful because it would allow you to take a command trait that, uh, other than the immune to battle shock one, 
um, that could give you that high bravery to make running blocks of thralls much more viable and to make those abilities that bring thralls back to units much more viable. Um, and if you're running those kind of big units, just having something that can put out Mystic Shield reliably isn't going to be a bad thing either. So I would say if you're considering a thrall list, definitely take a look at the Eidolon of the Sea. Now, can, moving on. Can I, sorry. Can I, can I come to the Sorry, defense? I'm sorry. No, 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 not, not at all. Um, I want to come to the defense of the Eidolon of the Sea for just a minute. Mm -hmm. Because you, you made an interesting point around Primal Magic Dice. And you're 100% correct. You either re-roll or Primal Magic Dice. You can't do both. When I look at the Eidolon of the Sea, one of the benefits is the fact that I get two consistent spell casts and unbinds. So it allows me uh, for resource management to put my primal dice either into unbinding or if I have the tide caster that we're about to talk about, it means that I can put all my primal dice into the tide caster and my Eidolon is running around with a pretty consistent spell cast and I'm not going to be putting my primal dice there anyway. Mm. But if you were someone thinking of Antorian Locus, Antorian Acolytes Battalion and you wanted two tide casters plus an Eidolon, that's a lot of points that mm. is not going into your army. So I guess, and this is where army construction comes into play, that Eidolon of the Sea, independently, it's decent. But do you have better options and what is your build style? I guess this is where you're going to talk a bit more about the, the, um, the Tidecaster and then we'll get into the rules and we'll talk about the changes and even the Battle Scroll. Like there's some good changes in September um, specifically for IDK. Hmm. No, I think that's a really good point you made about the Eidolon of the Sea. You know, there is something for being able to say, like, let's say you're taking your Tidecaster and you want to cast Blizzard and Hoarfrost on that Tidecaster um, because they're in Antor and Locus, then having the ability to get more reliable unbinds and casts for your other spells without needing to invest Primal Dice could be quite useful. But it is that problem of how many points do you want to invest in magic when we're just not a magic army, you know? Bingo, and, bingo, and bingo. The, the way that magic works in AOS is, you know, you can play a game of AOS and you can have worse combat than your opponent and you can still win the game because there's movement, there's redeployment, there's unit numbers. But magic feels, and the primal dice has changed this a bit, I think it's a good thing, but the magic often feels like whoever has the advantage will get almost all their spells and whoever has the disadvantage will get almost none of their spells so you think okay i've got my eidolon and my tie caster and then i get drawn into starborn seraphon who are board wide plus three to unbind and then primals on top and then they can make you minus one to cast and unbind yourself you've spent 400 plus points on part of your army that's going to be non-functional um so it becomes this very risky investment. And with so much good magic around at the moment, I don't know if you want to make that investment. But I would encourage people to try the Eidolon of the Sea if they are going for a Thralls and Reavers based list, because I think there is something to be said for it there. Yeah, I so solely agree. And also corn as well. Like you have a good spell and corn just goes, nope. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, Corn. part of the reason they're so strong in the meta at the moment is because Starborn, which are also very, very strong, there's such a hard counter to that, right? So, you know, you you think you're at a big event, um, maybe 100 plus players, and 
you're maybe not going to play those really gritty metalists until game four or five. Corn can get through their other games where they're playing less meta armies. And then when they get to those top tables and they're matched into things like your Starborn, they can be like, hey, your whole army doesn't work against me. So I guess, guess I'm going to win. Um, but yeah, you, you know, like like that Ren spell on the Eidolon, you know, you could invest a lot of points taking the Eidolon for that, play Corn, and they just roll that five up or they blood tithe unbind it. And you're getting nothing from that point investment. Um, yeah, uh, the Dantoran Locus that we do have then is the Tidecaster. Now, the Tidecaster has, I've always felt it's been a bit too expensive. Um, when the book came out, I think she was sitting at 140 points and is now at 130 points. Um, 140 points for a one-cast wizard, that is quite expensive when you look at the other one-cast wizards that exist in the game. You know, Lumineth, I think, have quite a few one-cast wizards that sit around 110 points. They also have some really cool abilities for being able to auto-cast. Cities of Sigma have stuff like the Battle Mage. It's about 100 points. Um, but, but you do have a five-up ward. I will, I, yes. I would, I would pay 30 points on my Battle Mage <laughs> for a five-up ward any day of the week. Sure, yeah. So now... You know, we're kind of getting into the the things that are good about the Tidecaster. Um, purely just as a one-cast wizard, quite expensive in that bracket. The five-up ward that you mention is a really amazing ability. And it's also a really amazing ability to have on a foot hero because there aren't many little heroes that have that. You know, there are little heroes that have bodyguards um, or maybe ability, ways to get kind of a six-up ward. But little heroes that just have an innate five-up ward wherever they are in the game, not a lot of those. You also have a four plus base save. Now a four plus base save is really high for a, a wizard character. Most wizard characters in AOS will have a five up or even a six up save unless they're also a monster or a big hero. So the Tidecaster, and this goes for all of the Ishran characters, are far more survivable than most people would expect. And that's definitely something that can catch your opponents out. The Tidecaster's War Scroll spell isn't much to write home about. It's D3 Mortal Wounds and minus one to hit with an 18-inch range. Um, cast on a six, I believe. It's seven. fine. Seven. So, yeah, you know, cast on seven, it's not, it's not great. It's fine if you've got nothing else to cast. It's better than an Arcane Bolt. Um, range is good. The, the yeah. range at eight, 18 is, is quite generous. It is, yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely like if you do have a Tidecaster in your army and you're not doing tons of magic, you don't need a Mystic Shield. Maybe you're going second and you're getting that extra cast. Throwing it out onto an enemy unit isn't a bad idea. Um, now, the first thing about the Tidecaster that makes her really good is that Master of the Ether Sea Rule that allows you to get two rather than one Isharan ritual. Um, and I'm sure we can talk about the rituals in a bit, but they're just quite strong buffs to your whole army that benefit your whole army at different points in the game. So being able to pick two of those rather than one can be quite beneficial for your army. And for some armies, it's almost mandatory. Um, as an Antorian Locust, you also have access to uh, those really good spells. So your Horfrost, your Blizzard, Rupture less so, more situational, um, and those command traits that let you kind of either take all the spell lore or get extra primal dice and stuff. Um, so, yeah, and the command trait in the Eidoneth book, which, you know, 
I'm not sure when you want to talk about this. All but, right, you know. all right, all right. I'm going to I'm going to time you out here. Let's okay. Off the, no, no, no. In a good way. Let's get into the rules uh, because we are dancing around it. Let's get first off into the changes in the last mm. month or two. So there's a couple of key changes. Um, Hazel, you've already alluded to one of them, which is obviously the um, Tidecaster going down 10 points. And it wasn't the only unit that went down 10 points. No. Uh, and this obviously is just for the September one, not acknowledging other discounts that have happened along the way. As we've already talked about, Levidon starting at 500 and mm. it's continued to kind of get lower as we go. Uh, so the idol, uh, the, um, the Achillean King has, has gone down to 220. The Levidon's gone in at 400. The Soul Render's at 100. The Tidecaster's at 130. Uh, Reavers are at 160. Thralls are at 110. And then Volturnos is at two, uh, 230. So points discounts across the board. Nothing has gone up. A couple of other changes is we've had coherency changes. So now that is going to impact your eels especially mm -hmm. and the changes to the permanent change to the lookout server rules so that obviously complements your um your uh, forgotten nightmares abilities really well but it also is just enough changes that that not one change has has changed the the tide for you but it's a lot of positive changes that has put you in this position so talk to me about maybe some of the points changes and what it means to you and has it maybe changed the value of some things mm. that you would bring in a list? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we kind of touched on, there's been quite a few changes where Ideneth points have been trending downwards for a while now. So even though you look at this battle score on its own, it's, you know, minus 10 here or minus 20 there. Um, most of these units have lost at least 20, if not more points over the course of the last two points updates. Um, a couple of things to pick out, you know, the Leviadon, as we say, 500 points when the book came out, that's a quarter of your army on a 16 wound monster that doesn't have a ward. Um, 400 points, 100 points less, you could get like almost a whole other unit in your army now with that Leviadon. You know, you can take a Soul Render and a Leviadon for the same points cost that your Leviadon used to cost. So, that's really positive. I think at 400 points, I would be looking to put a Leviadon in every single Ideneth Deepkin list that I'm writing. Um, I just think having that monster, having that two-up base save, you've got good shooting, you've got good combat, you you scare other monsters because of the jaws on, on that. I was, go I was yeah. going to say, I think every time I've played against IDK, those jaws have triggered for six mortal wounds. Like, that is just... That's that's terror guys to kind of damage. Mm -hmm. And it can really it can like swing a game for you, right? Because you know, I played a game and this was quite a while ago, but I was playing against Kragnos and some Mega Gargans. And Kragnos had come in and killed a big unit of eels. And I was like, I've lost all these eels, they've done nothing. The turtle countercharged and boom, 12 mortal wounds you know, just because I spiked on those sixes and it swung that game completely back in my direction. Um, so it's not to be underestimated. I think there's some really cool abilities there. The plus one save, which affects everyone in the Ideneth range other than the turtle itself. Amazing. You know, we've seen with OBR how strong save, plus one save can be. It's a great buff to have. You're a great unit to use Unleash Hell on because you've got so many attacks and their D3 damage. 
you can give your reavers and your thralls plus one to hit so that with thralls um sorry with reavers even if you get charged and you've got those reavers near the turtle because they have two sources of plus one to hit you're hitting on twos on unleash hell you know with a lot of shots it's just a great great unit um you've got mount it's just and it's an amazing model as well right you know if you're an ideneth player who doesn't want to own that turtle paint it up and have it in their collection uh, i'll be honest when i got the battle tome for the very first time i did have thoughts of running three turtles uh, but at 500 points it was just it was a lols list it wasn't going to be my five and oh idk list but the i the, the turtles are sweet and the shooting attack is great. The um, the crushing charge, monstrous rampage. If you're going into a wounds characteristic of one, doing d6 damage is is solid. The points. It, it always felt like the points were just off. Mm. At 400, it's quite generous. Uh, very generous, actually. When you look at so the the mortal wounds, the shooting, and the the range of 24 inches is a turn mm. one threat. I yeah. really like that. It's a 10-inch move, a 24-inch shooting. Um, you know, obviously flies as well, which when you're talking about a model with a big base is always a really beneficial rule to have. So you're not going to get trapped around scenery or it makes it much harder for your opponent to screen you out. Um, it's just a really good model. You know, I think you can justify it in almost any list that you're taking right now. Um, looking, going back to those points changes, the other one that I would kind of look at as well when we look on here is uh, the Namati Reavers. Now, if you compare Namati Reavers to a very similar unit, which is um, the Blissbar Archers in Slanesh, when Ideneth book came out, I think Reavers were at 170-ish, and the Slanesh book came out um, and Blissbar Archers were around 140. Now, Reavers, I think, are now cheaper or the same price as Blissbar Archers, but with a better shooting profile and better abilities to get in range. Um, they were already really good and they've gone down in points. Everything else in that army has gone down in points. Um, they're a very attractive pick, I think, in the current meta, um, especially when you're talking about things like Soul Blight, where having a huge number of dice is going to really get through those blocks of zombies or things like OBR where the save stacking and you just need to try and get them to roll ones. Those big blocks of dice from the Reavers can be really beneficial as well. Um, yeah, I think, you know, everything in the Ideneth range that has gone down in points is a winner because it's just made it more viable. And Ideneth have never had like bad units. They've never had units where the war scroll itself is like a problem or you think it's just not good enough. It's just they haven't had points costs or synergies that are as good as other units. Um, but I think everything there is a winner. You mentioned about the coherency change. That really excited me when it came out. Um, and it's not something I've had a chance to play with, but I would encourage people who are a bit eel curious to go out and try some games with those units of six because now that you can kind of have that front line of all the eels in a line, um, rather than having to kind of have two and then two twos and then an eel each behind, it makes it much easier to get that full frontage in range and to get those charges in a way which helps you be where you want to be. Um, so I think that's quite exciting as well. 
Yeah, and their points have gone down a little bit too. If I remember correctly, like mm. Ishlangard were like 190 or 200. They're down a little bit uh, in this GHB, and the coherency rule has has helped you a lot because there was a time in second edition where a block of six Ishlangard was in every list. Everyone had that big tanky unit that could just take damage, save stack to the nines, and mm. grind it out. Yeah, I mean... I'm still not sure Ishlane are really where they need to be to be a good take right now. Um, that point in kind of the end of second edition, where we're, where we're kind of talking about, it was possible to get yourself onto a two plus unrendable save when you were charging, um, which is obviously a dream for all sorts of reasons. Um, so that big block could really happily just go in and pin someone's army in for a turn um, and be expected to survive. Now you can't ever get better than a three-up unrendable, um, and that's when you're charging. And when you're not charging, you're stuck on a four-up. Um, it's it's just the game has increased in power so much in terms of the rend available and the save stacking available since these War Scrolls were written. It just isn't what it used to be. No, definitely not. And I would argue that Ishlan Guard uh, suffered the same fate as the Ethereal Vampire Lord on Zombie Dragon, which was super popular in the last GBH. But the minute Merciless Blizzard come out, you've seen a lot of Soulblight players pivot away from that build because mm -hmm. you can't just grind it out. You just now become a target for Blizzard, and that's a big investment of points from one spell. And especially one that's fast moving, getting in within 12 inches. Yeah, I can't teleport anymore to, to blizzard you with my wizard, but that unit will go pretty quickly uh, if I get blizzard off and you don't have the magical um, defense to stop me in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you want to try that pinning move now, you're almost that and you're going to end up within 12 of the wizard that your opponent has blizzard on. Um and yeah, your chances of unbinding it are not amazing. You don't want to lose a 400-point-ish unit just to a single spell. Um, yeah, I just, it's just difficult. I just don't think that Ethereal 3-Up really does it in the current game state um, when so many people are just like, well, I can get to a 2-Up save. I can get to Ren 3 or even rent four on my units. It's just not there anymore. What um, about the other oh, change? Should we talk? Uh, should we find? Should we talk about the sharks? Uh, that's literally where I was about to go. Okay. All right. I think I've got in my mind. I don't want to make this the shark show. So, um, okay. Let's talk about the sharks. So, Futhan is, and I've got no idea if I'm saying that right. That's all right. <laughs> my pronunciation is not the best. I've always called it Futhan. So. Yeah, okay, so Futhan um, is the sub-faction in Eidneth Deepkin that allows you to take sharks as battle line. Um, the rule that they had previously, it was quite a convoluted rule, where basically you had to take three sharks as single units, and if they were all within six of each other in the combat phase, one of them could get exploding sixes to hit on its jaw attacks, and that was it, and... Exploding sixes to hit, and this is something that, you know, if you don't know this, just put it in your head. Exploding sixes to hit on a three-up hit profile is the same as hitting on twos, basically. Um, so 
when you got hitting on twos, if you took sharks in a unit of two anyway, and one of them, it made no sense to take this quite convoluted rule. Um, Games Workshop came in with this battle scroll and out of nowhere, just completely rewrote this rule so that it went from this quite convoluted, uh, what is going on? Do I want to even bother with this thing? To, oh, hey, every single attack, shooting and combat on sharks, if you take them as single units in Futhan, uh, now has exploding sixes all the time. So it's like if someone came out and said, oh, hey, um, your entire army just hits on twos now. That's what Games Workshop have done here, is they've just made sharks hit on twos universally on all their weapon profiles. Think of it like that. It's funny you mention this because prior to this battle scroll, people would take sharks, but it was mostly <laughs> one or two sharks. They were supporting units and most people just wanted the net launcher. They would mm. stop you from piling in with, you know, a successful hit. And that's all sharks kind of did. They soak up and unleash hell. They're generally annoying, but you didn't really build around it. But as you've mentioned, you've started to see the tide shift and people are now investing into this um, bloodthirsty shiver, which at, at the time was an interesting rule, but it was never a viable strategy. Now, this is so good. Yeah, I mean, it, it used to be much more of like a kind of narrative rule of like, oh, imagine my sharks, you know, kind of getting into a bloodthirsty rage when there's a big shiver of them together. Um, sharks are a really interesting unit because when the book first came out and we're talking first edition Eidneth, they were not good at all. Um, they were just not reliable. There was no real use of them in any significant way all throughout that kind of first book. Um when the Nets got the change to um, stopping pylons, at that point in time, you were seeing quite a lot of big blocks of scary units that had things like a six-inch pylon. So we're thinking about things like Witch Elves and Sisters of Slaughter that were really popular at that point in time. So being able to kind of stop that pylon and then put a single base model into the corner of a big unit was a really effective way to kind of crowd control stuff. Um, that war scroll, when it got rewritten as well, those harpoons, when the book first came out, they were all one damage. They all became D3 damage, and that stayed the case on the shooting um, into the second uh, book that we had at the beginning of the third edition of the game. Now, sharks, actually, I've always played, in the since this book came out, two to four sharks in a list when I was playing mixed arms or using eels and, and reavers, because... They've always been the most point efficient unit in the book since it came out. And when I say point efficient, what I mean is when you're looking at what you get for the number of points that you're paying across the different relevant profiles. So you've got a four up save. It's not amazing, but it's good. And there are ways to make that better quite easily in IDK. You've got eight wounds. Eight wounds is a perfect amount of wounds to have uh, on these units because it means they benefit from cover it means they benefit from that turtle save bonus. Um, and it also means that they don't degrade in the way that other units of similar points costs do. So the easiest way to visualize that is, say you're paying for a unit of 10 thralls, 
Uh, as soon as they take one damage, their maximum damage goes down. If they take three or four damage, their maximum damage goes down. So if they're not going to hit first in a combat, a lot of the time they're going to do less damage than they would otherwise. Sharks, you know, they can take seven wounds and be on one wound left, and they're just as effective. So you lose that um, efficiency of your attacks uh, in a better way, even though it's maybe slightly less wounds than a unit of 10. You've got good shooting. It's threes and threes, which is the profile that you want on a unit with a minus one rend and D3 damage. So you can look at, I think, um, what's four times three? 12. So maximum damage is 12. Obviously, it's going to be less, but that's a really good amount of shooting to come out of a unit that also has a really solid combat profile. You can get up to four attacks quite easily on those jaws that are two damage, two rend. Um, and then you've got crew, which is, you know, uh, one damage, one rend, but all of it having a decent hit and wound profiles. They're just good. And they're 14 inch move as well, which is really fast. So everything on that war scroll is good. And for the points cost, it makes them the best unit per point in the book before you look at buffs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would wholly agree. They were a new, uh, they used to just be mostly like a supporting unit, like the Stormcast Chariot on the screen, put them mm. on the flank, um, handle some side stuff, score some objectives, come into the middle, support turtle, eels, thralls, whatever. Now they've become um, a very competitive, viable, and to your point, good at shooting they're good at movement they've got a decent save they've got a good combat profile they're not monsters so while they're not going to count as five on an objective they're still decent and they will clear a lot of troops that are sitting on an objective just because of the combination of shooting and and combat mm -hmm. as well and uh does that do you think that means now that we're moving away from the the uh the net as opposed and going into the harpoon um i think you could consider one nap um, in your list, but realistically, I think the harpoon is the far superior weapon option because you're just looking to put out as much damage as possible um, across your shooting phase and then also into the combat phase. Um, it's just a lot of damage. And that D3 damage, obviously, the more units you have in the army, the less susceptible you are to kind of spikes of doing less damage or more damage, and the more it's going to average up across those units. The same with the exploding sixes. You might have one shark where, you know, your four attacks, you roll a lot of twos and ones, but then you can easily have a shark where you roll two sixes and you've hit with more attacks than you started with, right? So it averages out quite well when you really take those lists with a lot of sharks in. It's, it's just a really crazy buff that makes them so, so strong. And it's a really, it, it, it's just surprised me. It's an interesting way to take an army that hadn't been doing very well and to just be like, okay, you're really good now um, through this one rule change. I think what's interesting is you can, you know, we've talked about the benefits. You can still build around thralls. You can do reavers. You can do turtles. Like, it's not like... And we'll, we'll go through some lists as we, we talk through this discussion. Yes, there will be a shark list, but there'll also be some other lists to kind of talk it through. So you, as your aquarium, bring it all together. And if you want to go as, as hard as the meta as, uh, and I think also another part of this is that people just don't know how to handle shark lists. 
And it's not like it's an I gotcha moment, but when you throw a bunch of sharks at me, I'm like, wait a second, I'm, I'm used to handling eels. I know what to do around thralls and reavers. What do I do against all these independent little threats where there are either one or two sharks running around? Like there's only so many things that I can handle. And if I overcommit, then there's other units unaffected that are going to come bite me in the face. It, yeah, that's it. one of the things about the shark list is that because it's all these individual units, um, it can make it really tricky for your opponent with decision-making. You know, if they've got a hero like, I don't know, say a bloodthirster, and they're in combat with two sharks, they don't know whether to go, okay, well, I'll put all my attacks into one shark and I'll definitely kill it, or I'll split my attacks and hopefully I'll kill both. Because, you know, I've had opponents who have gone in with a big killer unit, have split attacks across two sharks, and both those sharks are alive with two wounds, and then they're hitting you back at full efficiency. Right. And then if it's on my turn, maybe they're retreating and shooting uh, or maybe they're just retreating, sitting at the back of the board and putting out shooting for the rest of the game. Um, so it is hard for people to play around. I will say I don't think um, it's broken in the way that lists in AOS can be broken. You do have some tricky matchups. You do have some bad matchups. Um, and there are definitely ways to kind of deal with that shark list. Um, and yeah, and like you say, you know, I don't want people to think, oh, we're a one war scroll army. You know, everything in this book isn't worth taking except the sharks. Personally, for me, it's the best Ideneth list that's available right now. Um, but because of the points changes and how little some of these units have seen play since these big points changes, um, there's a lot of untested water um, and it's really kind of, up to the players to go out there and to start trying things. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to the rules, other rules in a second. But there's one call out that I just want to make on why I think sharks are doing well as well. Like we've we've just talked about some great things. I just want to add one more point, and that is with this current meta, you are seeing probably more castle than ever before because you're mm. seeing a lot of armies who are building into wizards. They're building into troops the battle plans are rewarding some some castle builds at times and the fact that you've got such great movement allow and independent threats you can move around the board tag objectives get and swing you know there's there's battle plans where you know there's pulsing on the objectives or yeah yeah there's battle tactics that reward you for charging and then retreating having so many independent threats in combination with the castles just works in your favor yeah, absolutely. You know, you kind of mentioned there briefly about battle tactics. We've got, um, you know, intimidate the invaders, more units outside of your territory uh, than wholly within your territory. Your whole army in Eidneth can get out of that territory pretty quick, you know, um, if they need to, and battle plan dependent. Outflank, um, where you, you know, you need to put three units at three different board edges with two of them being out of your territory. Surround and destroy. Yeah, surround and destroy, sorry. You know, for some armies, that's a real pain. You're like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to split things up. I'm going to have to sacrifice a unit this turn to not actually be doing anything on objectives or in the game um, just to go and stand near a board edge. For Ideneth, that's easy, right? You, you can happily put three sharks on three different board edges and then they'll just sit there and do some shooting. Uh, and get you a battle tactic, retreating uh, two units, charging two units. When you have a lot of units, much easier. Um, 
And then we've also got, you know, some book battle tactics that we can touch on in a bit that are quite favourable to that shark list as well. Yeah, but it's not the only list. Um, so we'll we'll try to not just talk sharks. As as excited as we are, I think part of this is the excitement as well. Is you know they're they're doing really well. They're a great unit. They're a lot of fun. But they're not the only build. So. We'll, mm, we'll, for sure. we'll, we'll try to keep our excitement just a little bit, otherwise it'll be the shark show. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, part of the reason as well why we're going to talk about these sharks is because it's a list that people are going to see a lot. So even if you're not someone who plays Ideneth, um, or you're kind of just getting started, then understanding what it is that makes that list tick is going to really help you in your games. Bingo. Love your work, Hazel. So talk to me about allegiance abilities. And we don't need to get into every particular mm -hmm. rule or whatever it might be. But when you look at the IDK allegiance abilities in the current General's Handbook, how are you thinking about things? Are you happy with the tides of death or are you looking to flip the tides? Are you building into rituals? Uh, does Forgotten Nightmares, is that a really critical thing that you're considering? How does this all come together in your head as a, a you know, a top, top tier player when it comes to IDK? Um, yeah, so, I mean, starting with Forgotten Nightmares, you know, when that came out, um, I think it was seen as like an amazingly strong rule um, because in AOS previously, we hadn't even had Lookout Sir. So, you know, you had situations like where, say you were playing a blood secretor in corn and someone had like a dwarf cannon and, you know, they would be sniping off your heroes with a dwarf cannon from, you know, 40 inches away or something. And there was not really anything you could do about it. You didn't have um, command abilities for saves. You didn't have lookouts there. So when that came out for Eidneth, a way to protect those small heroes and fragile units um, and to avoid those shooting attacks was really strong. I think it's a lot less relevant now because of how Lookout Sir has changed and how, you know, um, units like, say, the big blocks of Sentinels, you know, they still can't shoot um, unless they're within 12 now um, on those small heroes. So it, it's just a lot less relevant. That's not to say it isn't a really good ability. Um, and it is an ability that as an Ideneth player, you should be using to your advantage if you're playing into shooting to make sure that your opponent is going to have to shoot on your terms rather than their terms. Um, the Tides of Death, uh, which has been, you know, our kind of core allegiance ability, it's a different buff in each battle round. All the buffs are just really nice. Um, they're all good in their own way. Being in cover for that plus one save protects you against alpha strikes. Being able to run and charge or run and shoot, again, just really useful. When you're already a fast-moving army, you can easily go from that defensive deployment into a super aggressive deployment um, or just to kind of spread out and score points on the board while still benefiting from shooting in combat. Really good ability. High tide, strike first on your whole army. Oh, wow, you know, um, strike first. There was a point in kind of second edition where lots of armies had it. We've now moved away from that so that it's much rarer as an ability again. And being able to put that on your whole army on a turn, um, it really goes into that core Edneth playstyle, which is that one big hit hammer blow that cripples your opponent, um, you know, where they're sat there with their arms crossed while you play with all your toys. It is amazing it's always been amazing it always will be retreat and shoot retreat and charge more situational 
But, you know, again, it's one of those things that your opponent might forget about uh, that allows you to go and nab an objective. And then repeating your tides in the last turn, again, can be useful, especially um, when we talk about how the rituals play into that. Now, can I, can I ask you about high tide for a second? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people who have experienced high tide uh, as an opponent will know that this is coming. So my mentality coming into the battle is I need to do as much damage to you as possible to mitigate what's coming down, which is to turn three high tide. Do you find that still true today? Or like, what, how do you find the mindset of your opponents? Because I guess for you, some, well, not you, but like some IDK players, they think about the battle and like, right, I'm just going to prepare, hold back, and then I launch my attack in turn three when actually they probably should have done it in turn two and not worry too much about high tide. Yeah, um, I think if you're an opponent playing into IDK, you want, in battle round two, you want to really just hit and try and kill as much stuff as you can, where you're between that cover bonus and, um, sorry, uh, and that high tide. Um, if you're an Ideneth player, you need to be thinking about how that high tide swing needs to go um, and how you're going to make sure that you play the game to be at that point. Sometimes that can mean I don't mind going a couple of points behind in the first two battle rounds because I know that I'm going to get points ahead in the next three battle rounds. Sometimes it means actually um, I'm going to play quite defensive and, you know, hold back and then push out. Um your ideal situation is to be in a place where on battle round two, if we're talking non-reverse tide, you can push in, you can take, you know, maybe a turn of being hit back and then you're getting your high tide. And if your opponent is going first in that turn, they're then having to make the choice of do they st stick around in combat and get hit or do they just pull their whole army back and waste a turn? Um, yes, your opponent knows it's coming. Yes, you know it's coming. Um but the trick is not to just be like high tide is going to win me the game. Um, high tide is there to give you a finishing blow when you've already played the game to get yourself into a good position. Um, and you also can't rely on the fact that you're going to knock a load of stuff off in combat because of just how the game has changed as well. Um, but yeah. I, th I think it's just about being aware whether you're an opponent or whether you're the Eidneth player, how that high tide factors into your game plan. And I guess the cool thing as well is thinking about which two battle tactics could I do. If you're someone who's building around launching that attack with high tide, what are the two uninteractive battle tactics that you can score without having it in combat? You know, that's where surround yeah. destroy. That's where like there's certain battle tactics where you can just like not interact then mm -hmm. turn three, go in for the kill, and apply high tide. But sometimes actually launching your attack in turn two is the better option and not waiting for high tide, striking while the opportunity exists. Yeah, you know, if you're playing into an army that where you already have a combat advantage, um, so, I mean, I'm thinking like Seraphon, for instance, where you know, a starborn seraphon list where they're looking to do a lot of mortal wounds and that damage is like a ticking clock into your army. You just want to go in ASAP, you know, because, you know, those skinks, those saurus guard, they're, they're going to crumble when you get into that castle and start biting into them with eels or sharks or, you know, 
whatever you've got there. But Slanesh is another one, like getting into mm. before they generate enough depravity. Exactly. Points, yeah. Like, like, you know, yeah, for sure. You know, like if you're playing Slanesh and they've got that big Bliss Barb Seekers unit, don't sit around waiting for high tide. Kill it now. Kill it turn one. Kill it turn two. You know, get it off that board as soon as you can. Um, where you're thinking maybe I do want high tide is where maybe you're not going to trade as well. Or, you know, for instance, like, say you're playing into um, an army like the old Beastful list that I was running, where you're going to get hit by monstrous actions and they're going to have quite a good combat profile. So trading back and forth in activations might not be favorable, but where doing a lot of damage, even if you don't take those units out, is going to really reduce their ability to hurt you. Those might be times where you're thinking, I'm going to play into high tide. Um, so it's just about, you know, feeling what works for you with the army, getting those reps in and getting used to like, okay, well, this is, you know, what happened when I tried this. This is what happened when I tried that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, the army does play around high tide. What about your Ishran rituals? Are there ones that you use more than others? Are there ones, maybe even situations? Like, what what could you, what advice can you give me around rituals? Yeah, so I would say that the one that you're maybe looking at, kind of picking the least, is the spiteful riptide, um, which is when you retreat on the um, ebb tide, which is normally turn four um on a four plus it takes d3 mortal wounds it's not guaranteed how many units you're realistically going to be retreating with sometimes on that turn you don't even want to retreat even though you can because you have to choose between shooting and combat and you'd rather have both um that's not to say you never pick it because there are times where you will but it's probably the least useful um ritual of the creeping mist is the one that i would generally pick the most but it's matchup dependent so sometimes you're going to play armies and this is where communicating with your opponent happens as well is you know you need to ask people what shooting they have but what the ranges of that shooting is because if you're playing like soul blight or you're playing corn it's not going to be very useful to pick a you know or even if they've got one shooting unit but it's like a 12 inch range like there's no point using that ritual so don't just be like i'm always going to pick this ritual um but it does turn things uh that could otherwise be quite tough matchups into quite advantageous ones so thinking about ko for instance whether that be a shooting ko list or a combat ko list they're going to have to commit or not get to play right you know they either have to put their whole army up there within 12 of you where if they don't do enough damage you're going to really cause them some problems um or they have to kind of sit back and lose a ton of shooting so you know ritual of the creeping mist it's situational but it's so strong in those games where it is useful rune of the surging stream is my go-to for i would probably pick it in most games if i have the option um, just because plus one to run and charge is really nice. Um, what's really nice about plus one to the charge in particular is that as Ideneth, it's really common to get a lot of units three away from your opponent. Um, and just knowing that if you roll that double one, you're still actually going to be able to make the charge is nice and it takes a lot of the stress off. You don't want to be in that situation where you roll a double one into a double one with your Achillean King um, and you just go to the bathroom for a minute and have a little cry because um, I've been there and it doesn't feel good. Um, one thing to briefly mention on that is to remember how the run 
role work, role works with um, the command ability to automatically run six. You don't get that bonus if you choose to automatically run six. So you do have to roll that dice. So it's not possible to automatically go seven um, unless you roll that dice and happen to get a six. So just bear that in mind with the run rolls. Uh, Ritual of Deep Sight. Namati units affected by high tide have a ward of five plus. This is a really interesting one because obviously a ward of five plus is nice. It's really strong. Um, but it's on the time where you're fighting first anyway. So how useful is it? Um, in a Reaver list, I think you want that. In a If you're playing more combat thralls, you might not want that. Um, but I think because... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think because you're going to have um, a tie caster in most of your lists, you're going to get two of these. Uh, if you're playing thralls, then I think you're either going to want to go creeping mist and deep sight or surging stream and deep sight uh if you're playing more of an eel based army you might want to think about um surging stream and riptide you know same with with sharks um and then your creeping mist is there to help you in those shooting games but yeah really nice abilities really helpful yeah i would agree wholeheartedly maybe the ritual of deep sight might become more valuable against say zombies or corn where like you have models uh, you know either fighting on death or they're doing models on the way out that <laughs> yeah that, that that might be a use case to to do deep sight but i'd probably agree with you that creeping mist and surging stream would be more useful to me i think the other thing with deep sight is that remembering that we've got that faction terrain as well um, that provides a way to get five upwards on Namati units in other situations. It can make it less useful. Um, but, you know, if you're taking a big block of 20, 30 thralls or reavers, having extra ability to keep those blocks alive is not going to hurt. No, just because you don't have any bonuses to rally or, you know, there's nothing... Like, if you want to keep those thralls and reavers alive, you, you you need something like this. Yeah, you know, and if I was running thralls or reavers, um, if my opponent didn't have shooting, then I think I would probably always prefer deep sight over riptide because, you know, it's you're not going to be retreating with a lot of units. No, good call. Really good call. Do you have any favourite favorite sub-factions? So we've already talked about um, Futhan already. Uh, ignore the rules there, folks. Yeah. Um, that's I, old rules. I, I, but we showed new rules before, so ignore that. Old rules we've acknowledged. What about the rest of them? I think, you know, on Futhan, just as you're watching along, you can kind of see and read how convoluted that role used to be. Uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I'll say there. Um, for me personally, before the change that was made, Iron Rack was my favourite sub-faction. And the reason um, because of that... Uh, would be you could give yourself flood tide on an Achillean king and then so obviously you know people might be familiar with the slap king uh, which is something you know when we look at command traits we can talk about but you could on a turn that wasn't turn two so for instance on high tide or even on turn one um, you could give yourself flood tide on that unit uh, you could auto run six and move your king up 20 inches and then charge or you could do the same thing with a unit of eels um the other thing you can do with that is with those morsar guard eels is if they're hanging around the king which they should be because you want that hit buff um is 
where they've gone in, they've charged, they've done their plus two damage, sorry, two damage, two end spear attacks, is then you can pull them back out and then they can charge in again to get that buff, even if it isn't on the ebb tide turn. So for instance, say you go in on turn two, you go in, you do a lot of damage, you, it's your turn on turn three, you're fighting first, you pull them out, you charge them in, you do a load more damage. So Iron Rack to me was always my favorite one. Um, Nautila is the turtle sub-faction, but uh, it's Games Workshop, you're just mean. Like, why do we have to do a monstrous action to get rend three? Why can't we just have good rend? Uh, it's sad, it's sad. If you want to play more than one turtle, play Nautila. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's not the one for me. Um, if if this was uh, the first General's Handbook of 3rd Edition, where it was the monster meta, and mm. the points were now what the points are, love it. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but not now. Not I mean, obviously, if you want to run two turtles and you're just a mad lad, do it. Do it to your heart's content. But, like, it's hard yeah. to look at that versus, like, Dom Hain, where there's so much interesting play there between, like, what you're doing, either going first or going second. Like, it's nice. But I think there's so many more rich sub-factions. Hey, you know, listen, if you're out there, I'm still waiting for someone to play four turtles and a Kelly and King. You're not going to win the event, but your opponents are going to be what the hell is happening and you're going to have a great time. So Nautilus is waiting. Do not threaten me with a good time. I wanted <laughs> to do four and put bandanas on them. Uh, I wouldn't know why. Certainly nothing to do with the hat that I'm wearing. I definitely didn't have that idea. I think you should do it. Even if you borrow the turtles, I think you should do it. Um, yeah, uh, more fan, I'll touch on briefly. Um, I don't think, even if you're playing Thrills, that the lure light ability that the Sorrenders have is good enough to kind of justify taking a whole subtraction for it. Um, effectively, you could be bringing back to a unit at the end of Battleshock. Uh, best case scenario, if you take Morphan 6 models, that's six wounds back. You know, if you compare that to other armies that bring models back, Soul Blight, you know, they're bringing more than six wounds back a turn with those skeletons, with those zombies. Um, they're bringing whole units back when they get destroyed, you know. It's OBR, they're bringing lots of models back every turn. Is it in worth investing your whole sub-faction in? I just don't think it works. Can I can I give a minor defence? Only minor, only minor. I'm not, I'm not putting it up the rung, but I'm just going to call it out one little minor thing, and that is uh, obviously the changes to rally and the amount of wounds you can, you can rally. This gets around it. So should you be someone trying to, like, have this amazing horde of um, Namadi, this is a way to complement that rally as well as extra bodies. But, yes, would I invest a sub-faction? Probably not because it's nice, but it's only a couple of extra wins. Yeah, and I, I think the problem you have even still with Namadi is that they're so fragile. You know, um, the best save they can ever have is a four-up. They're one wound if, that you lose them so quickly. Personally, I feel that if you want to go like the Namati thrills route with the combat damage, MSU is more of a way to go with them. Um, with maybe 
maybe units of 20 at the most, just because you've got to bear in mind there's that battle shock risk as well. They're not high bravery units. There's a lot of things that stop inspiring presence in the game at the moment. They, you know, they just previewed a dragon model that again stops in, inspiring presence yesterday. Um, I just don't think it's there. I'm not saying that you can't play Namati. I'm not saying that you can't play a Soul Render. I just don't know if you would want your whole sub-faction to give you that single ability. Yeah, it's not the right time for it if you were taking this to a tournament. It's not that it's a bad rule. It's just it's probably not the right time to make the most of these rules. But you know what? If points keep going down, the meta shifts, something happens with Flesh Eater Courts, I mean, coming down the line, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, it's, you know, always worth knowing and keeping an eye on because things change and they change fast. Um, Dom Hain is really interesting. When I first saw this, I thought this is really cool and quite exciting. Um, but it's kind, it, it's just tricky. It's it's a very tricky rule to play around because it, it changes based on where you're going in the battle round. Um, and obviously, because of how AOS works with priority roles, it can make it very hard to predict who's going to get that choice, who's going to benefit from that rule. Um, you know, redeploying on three units um, instead of one, but also because this is a slightly older rule, it's not as good as some of the new rules. So some of the new rules that you'll see, like around redeploy, for instance, in um, uh, Fangs of Sotek, you can choose to do those free redeploys at a different time to the original redeploy. Um, because of the way this rule is written, you actually have to do um, all of them at the same time, which makes it quite difficult to use because, um, yeah, <laughs> you don't necessarily want to do that redeploy all at once because then your opponent can just move up anyway. Um, if you're talking, if you're taking Dom Hain, you want the first half of the rules. Where yeah, you, find, you you want the go first, and you don't. I mean, there'll be situations where you redeploy three times is nice, but it's not that useful. And any smart opponent is just going to go, "Cool, you can go, you can go second, you can go second, and like that's just whole self faction." Yeah, obviously with Dom Hain, you want that first rule, and what you want is uh, charge in your opponent screened. You kill the screen, doesn't matter because you can charge in and hit the thing behind the screen. Um, yeah, you know, more. I want more people to play it because I find it hard to kind of judge how useful it is right now. Um, on paper, I think it's an interesting rule and I would like to see more people try it out. I think you see it in, it's basically Order's version of Iron Jaws where Iron Sons allows you to, you know, charge a second time and, and that's a really powerful rule. But the difference is, is that you've got to go first. Mm, I think that's maybe a problem that exists in the Eidneth book is that there's quite a lot of what-ifs in these rules. You know, it's like, for example, with the Morphan uh, bringing models back, on the actual soul render war scroll, it's like it's D3 unless you fight and kill something. And, you know, it, it's these like abilities that are good in a situation rather than just working. Um, but for me, if you if you're someone out there who's like, I'd like to try thrills, I'd like to try, you know, like thrill masters and buffing up those units of thrills, I think Domhain would be the sub faction. Yeah, I would choose that over for um, Morfan. Morfan's names. Uh, <laughs> Do we want to quickly go over the bros, the Bromdars, and then 
yeah so um yeah just to kind of quickly go on to Briomda is the soul scryer normally lets you deep strike nine away um within six of a board edge and wholly within 12. this just removes the six of a board edge ability um you do have to be nine away you don't have charge buffs um anymore because they took them away which is sad um it's not something that you want to use if you're looking to get into combat. It's not particularly useful for eels or, um, you know, your Achillean kings. Where I think it is useful is if you want to take a heavy shooting list with Reavers, because um, it lets you keep those units off the board so that they're not going to get hit uh, before you have a chance to use them and then put them down in a, in a place where they're going to be effective, um, you know. So, yeah. And obviously, nine away means that you can get around that lookout, sir, as well. Um, yeah, and the whisper and the whisper bow being eighteen now uh, does allow hmm. you to be wholly within twelve of the soul scryer and still get maximum shots off, as opposed to yeah, you, know, you could put a couple of units exactly nine away and then another unit behind those and they'd all be able to shoot. Um, so yeah, I think if you're looking at reavers, it's not one hundred percent going to be Briamdor as your sub faction, um, but I would think about. Are there ways that I could use that deep straight to my advantage? But yeah, the thing, the thing with IDK is you've already got so much speed, right? And I think, was it battle round two, you can run and shoot? So mm -hmm. uh, do you need the the deep strike um, or we, are you better off being on the board? I think the question is, will they take damage? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like if, if, if an opponent looks at your list, will they target the, the Reavers or will they go for, you know, the Sharks, the Turtles, the Eels, the Eidolon? Um, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think, you know, even when I haven't used Briomdar um, in the past, I found deep striking some Reavers to be quite an effective tactic, even if you're not taking lots of Reavers, even if you're just doing like a 10 and a 10, um, for instance. Um it, it can be quite effective because you can just you can have the majority of your army in one part of the board playing one part of the game and then they can just pop up somewhere else and your opponent's like oh god do i send something to go over here and deal with this or do i just end up taking shooting or, or turn um yeah and obviously your opponent has to commit to kind of zoning you out and leaving stuff as well Bingo. I was, that's it's literally where I was going to go with that was not only is it actually what it can do, but it's a psychological damage where they're screening more, they're, uh, they're zoning out, they're stretching out because they're trying to deny you the movement. And actually that might impact the, the opponent just overall game plan because they're worried so much about these deep striking reavers. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or things like Sylvaneth, for instance, where they're going to be over in the woods um, if you can kind of, because of the woods and that three inch depth rule, if you can find an angle where they're not three inch deep into that wood and you can get shots in. Um, yeah, I think it's just worth thinking about if you're going to take Reavers. Do you have a favorite command trait from the, from the battle tome? And then the second question is, is it better than going Antorian Locust like Shaman of the Chilled Land? Um, so I have two command traits that I think are significantly better than all of the others. The first one is Unstoppable Fury, which is uh, also affectionately known in the community as the Slap King, uh, which is basically 
because of the king having an ability on his war scroll where he can give D3 units, including himself, fight first when they charge once the game, um, you can benefit from this twice during a game, uh, once during high tide, but then also once during a charge of your choosing. Um, it just gives you a ton of extra attacks on your polearm weapon, uh, which is going to be on twos, twos, uh, rend three, I think, damage three um, when it charges. So, um, yeah, I've killed Nagash in a single combat phase with this command trait, you know. Um, I think the most I took off, bear in mind this isn't going to happen very often, but I took off, you know, over a thousand points of Stormcast just with an Achillean King once. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, if you're taking your Achillean King in your army, that's the command trait that you're taking. Yeah, the, turning that to Ren 3 for 3 damage uh, with 2 extra attacks, 5 attacks. Uh, I assume all that attack is getting it down to 2s. He, so, uh, he gives Achillean units plus 1 to hit with it holding within 9. He's an Achillean uh, unit. He gives himself the room. There you go. I hadn't got to that part yet, but uh, even better. Yeah, and then it wounds on 2s innately, I think, so... Um... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the the polearm on the polearm, yeah. yeah, yeah, the great sword um, and the falcon does threes, but the polearm specifically wounds on twos. Yeah, so uh, you only ever take the polearm. Sorry to clarify, I forgot there was another weapon option. No, 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 no this good. Was, <laughs> I'll, I'll, that was my next question. Was going to be how do you arm it? And yeah, it's the polearm. Polearm every day of the week. Uh, you do get the falchion for free, um, which is quite nice because, you know, if you are going in the falchion, the mount doesn't benefit, but the falchion does benefit from those extra attacks. So say you wanted to kill Nagash and then there's some zombies nearby, pop your falchion into the zombies, pop your polearm into Nagash. Um, Bob's your uncle. I'm glad you clarified because there's no world in I live in or maybe living in the future where I would choose the falcon over the polearm or a great sword if it was a choice, like there is literally no benefit. So yeah, <laughs> it's just a little freebie. Um, but yeah, just remember you get those bonus attacks on that falchion as well. Um, it's a lot of attacks. It Flashing is a lot of tail, attacks. Fangs and talons, falcon mm. and the falchion, and then either the polearm or the great sword. It's a lot of attacks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, if you're taking the Kellyan King, um, he is going in for one turn. He is killing you know hopefully at least 500 points worth of stuff um and and then he's going to rest in peace at the bottom of the sea because uh on a seven wounds he's not gonna he's not gonna survive whatever's left to here um, and it's 220 points it's an incredible yeah. trade mm -hmm. it's an incredible trade piece incredible it is you know um there is no bad list where if you take an Achillean king and unstoppable fury it might not be the best thing to take for your list, but there is no bad list where that's the case. Um, I think worth just mentioning is Lord of Storm and Sea. Um, if you wanted to run an Amati list, then a Thrallmaster is an Achillean hero. Um, having Battleship Community, if you're going to take big Thrall lists, um, that might be something you want to consider. Uh, otherwise, you know, just wanted to touch on that. Born from Agony, forget it. You, ne you never want to take it. It's it's just too random and none of your Achillean heroes have enough wounds to benefit from it. You did mention at the top of the show as well, the uh, endless sea storm. So if you were going to take the aspect of the sea, being able to, um, if you successfully cast a spell that wasn't unbound with an unmodified casting roll of seven, they can cast an extra spell. So if you, yeah. if you, if you were going to invest, um, that could be another option. 
yeah, you know, and there's some there are some neat tricks with that. You know, for example, um, deploy out of unbind range, cast your buff spells on seven pluses, then cast your seed of tides. Um, and then you could do your Ren spell. You could throw a purple sun out. You could throw um, a uh, pendulum out. You know, there are there are ways where that can be useful. Um, if you really want to play an aspect of the sea, it's definitely worth thinking about. But I would encourage you to put endless spells in your list to benefit from that uh, rather than just rely on the book. Um, for Isharan, I've never used Hunter of Souls or Merciless Raider. Um, the reason for that is Hunter of Souls, you know, it's like there's so many ifs for if that's going to happen. And you're also putting it on a hero that isn't really a combat hero. So if your Isharan character is, you know, hanging around within three of an enemy hero for much of the game, something's gone a bit wrong. Um, Merciless Raider, I mean, auto wound on, you know, what, like your best weapon on Isharan is like three attacks which does two damage or something. No, 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 thanks. No, no, move <laughs> yeah. on. Move, move along. <laughs> um, teachings of the Terskull is, this is the other command trait that I would say you want to think about taking a lot um, in Leideneth. And what that lets you do is, um, bear in mind your general has to be on the battlefield, so you're not going to want to put that on a Soul Scryer because uh, then you're not going to be able to use it. So normally you're going to want to take this on a Tidecaster. Um, is it lets you flip the tide so you're not getting that low tide in turn one you're getting ebb tide on turn one which isn't going to be very useful but you're getting that fight first on turn two um and in some games that is just incredible you know um it's quite an advanced decision making process to understand when you want to flip that tide and it could be you, you take this command trait and you go to an event and you play five games and you don't flip the tide that doesn't mean it was the wrong choice to take that. Um, and that can be quite a difficult thing to get your head around because it's it, in the game where you want to flip the tide, it wins you that game. You know, um, uh, kind of as an example of when you might, might want to flip the tide. Um, Seraphon with Starborn, like we said about wanting to get in as mm -hmm. soon as possible um, and to do as much as possible. You flipping that tide, deploying as close as you can, just throwing yourself in there. Corn, where they're not going to alpha strike you with a lot of units because they can only kind of double move and murder lust on, on one unit um, at the start of the game. You know, where you, they are going to get into your face quite quickly and where you do want to, you know, try and get them off the board and get that combat advantage. Um but where they're not going to do a lot of damage turn one, that's another one where you might want to think about flipping that tide. Um, a mirror matchup where they don't have a lot of shooting, where you can get your fight first before they get their fight first. Again, you want to think about it. Um, Soul Blight, they don't have any shooting. They're not very fast. They're not going to out for you, but you need to get rid of as many of those bodies and units as quickly as you can. You want to flip the tide. When don't you want to flip the tide? KO, you want to zone, you want that creeping mist, you want that save buff, you you know, um potentially um squigs, where they're gonna send that big unit of squigs, you want that save buff, uh, you want to be able to castle up and zone out. Um yeah, there's it, it it's a tricky one. Um I think it's something where if you're gonna be like, I want to learn about the tide flip, take it a lot, play a lot of games. Try it different ways. Be like, 
prepared to lose and be like, okay, I made a bad decision and I got tabled or um, I wish I'd flip the tides in that game. Just keep playing it until you feel out how it works for you. It's no different to Battle Regiment where just because you take Battle Regiment doesn't mean you have to go first or you have to go second. But the fact that you've got the choice and, yes, yeah, sometimes you get it wrong where you wish you took first or you gave it away, but having the choice um, and being able to respond to the opponent, that flexibility is worth its weight in gold. So um, I agree wholeheartedly with you if you were going to do an Ishran hero. Before I go back to the Antorian Locuses, I've got to pull you back up. You said if you're going to take an aspect of the sea, you would take endless spells. Is there a couple that you would take in particular? I know you mentioned earlier Purple Sun as an off comment. Is it like Purple Sun, Geminids, Grave Tide, those types of spells? Or what are you what are you most likely going to choose? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, if you're running Reavers, Purple Sun is a decent shout but, um, because of that ability to um, get that extra random shooting because it just takes the save off the units that are nearby it. So you could pop that purple sun down, um, you know, in front of someone's army. And then when your reavers are coming in, um, they're rend two rather than rend one. So that could be quite useful. Um, I think, you know, pendulum is just pretty decent if you want to get rid of those high save units um, that don't have a ward against mortal wounds, uh, being able to kind of just throw that down. It also makes people move out of castles because it's just kind of flying around in this line, so they have to kind of move around a bit. Um, Grave Tide helps you clear out those big units. Uh, Geminids, you know, yeah, it's good. Stops command abilities. I probably wouldn't take it that much just because um, I just think it's, you know, it's a bit more situational, especially if you're running a turtle, you've got roaring combat. Um, it's not bad, though. It's not bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Horror Ghast as well to stop people getting Inspiring Presence isn't a bad shout. I think basically if you're taking um, an Eidolon and you're casting spells, you want to get the most value out of that as possible. So finding an endless spell that you think works with your list, that you enjoy, that you think is effective. Um, there's a few different options, but yeah, I would just encourage you to have a look around and play. No, that's cool. I, I definitely wanted to make sure I heard what, it, what your favourite animal spells were before we move to what I assume I mean, is going to be a yeah. very it's going to be a very quick conversation. I, I don't imagine we want to go through all of the Entorian locusts. No, so I'll just talk about Shaman because I think that's the one that's relevant for Eidna. Um Shaman on a Tidecaster is not a terrible choice. Hoarfrost isn't super useful in Eidneth because of the fact that you have quite low hit and wind profiles anyway, um, and your rend is fairly good anyway. Um, if you are taking those brick thrill blocks, then, you know, getting rend two or rend three on your thrills could be useful. So having access to hoarfrost. If you've got a turtle as well, having access to hoarfrost to um, either make your fins have a better wound profile or to get better rend on those fins, again, can be quite useful. Um, but mostly you want it for Blizzard, right? Because, it, like, I have played around a bit with it. Like I say, I'm not super good with magic, but, you know, I killed Scarbrand with a Blizzard because you don't roll a five up. Bad luck, he's he's dead. Um, I killed um, Bastion from Stormcast with a Blizzard. You know, if you're going second in a battle round, teleporting nine away and then 
being like, okay, well, if I get priority, I can blizzard some high profile target. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a perfectly good option to think about. I think the question the question here is not about the value of Blizzard, but rather do you need Hoarfrost, Rupture and Blizzard? And we'll get to that in a minute when we bring it up. I, but I'm, yeah, but, but I'm think... hearing the answer is like take take Blizzard on a wizard <laughs> without without spending your command trait on something else. Well, I think the reason I would say that you do benefit from Shaman is more so because it lets you take Seed of Tides as well without having to take an extra spell enhancement. Um, which allows you to move that tide cast the way you want them to be. Good call out. So if you want the extra, I guess the question is, do you need to be battle regiment or can you go uh, warlord, you know, command entourage? If you mm. don't value the one drop as much, then maybe you don't need to do a shaman at your land. But if you are going yeah. one drop and you want to have access to both, this yeah you know if you're playing a list that has quite a few heroes and quite a few drops anyway and you're looking at command entourage or a warlord and um, you know we don't have tons of good artifacts um so taking a spell enhancement and then getting a choice of command trait it's not a bad choice but i i think you know for me shaman is a perfectly good choice and i don't think you can go wrong putting shaman on a tidecaster no it's a, it's the flexibility that you get from the spells All right, so we're back from a quick little break, and um, now we're going to talk artifacts. And, you know, you've just alluded to, Hazel, um, not having the strongest artifact choices. Are there a couple that kind of stand out to you, especially because, as you said, you don't really want to go command entourage, you know, get to, to get the magnificent extra artifact? Yeah, um, I think, you know, previously you used to be able to take Arcane Tome and then um, Flaming Weapon on the Achillean King, which was great. Obviously, you can no longer do that. Arcane Tome is still not a bad pick for you. Um, I know it's not very exciting, um, but if you're taking an Achillean King, you don't take a wizard. Having Arcane Tome, so you've got an Unbind and you can cast Mystic Shield. Still a good pick. Um, for the two artifacts I would probably go for from the book, um, it's the Potion of Hateful Frenzy as an option to put on your king, um, just because it gives you an extra attack and uh, a bonus on kind of run and charge rolls, and it allows you to ignore some of those minuses to hit or wound that you might face on your Achillean king. Um, you're probably going to die anyway um, in the next hero phase, by the next hero phase, so the D3 movements are not being able to pile in, isn't a big deal. Um the one that I'm a big fan of at the moment is the Rune of the Surging Gloomtide. Uh, that lets you, at the end of the first movement phase, uh, phase put down an extra Gloomtide shipwreck. And the way you set that up is in the same way on the War Scroll. So you can either put it as two separate parts, three from each other, or as one ship where the pieces are touching. Um, this is really handy because if you do take it on your Tidecaster, like I say, you can Steed of Tides, um, to get yourself into a position on the board where you want to put that down, and then you can drop that uh, Gloom Tide Shipwreck. The two ways that you could use this in IDK is if you're taking Thrills or Reavers, is to give you access to that five up ward um, by being able to put an additional boat down outside of your deployment zone. Um, and then the other way, which is what I call the toxic matter way, which is how I've mostly been using it, um, is to make it so that your opponent can't get stuff into combat with you or they have a really hard time getting stuff into combat with you. So if you think about a unit of like 60 zombies, 
if there's a big boat in the way and then you've got like a shark kind of hiding between the boats they're gonna get like three or four zombies into combat with you um <laughs> which isn't what they want so um yeah that's that's one that i would say maybe it's more of an advanced pick because you are looking to kind of do some funky stuff with it to disrupt your opponent more so than benefiting yourself question and then another question so question about the surging gloom tide does that make the creeping gloom tide grand strategy harder to score if that is going to be your pick yeah so my understanding is that it does because it adds another gloom tide shipwreck and that you know um those gloom tide shipwrecks they need to be away i wouldn't pick that if i was going to take that grand strategy because it does make it harder what it does make easier is the battle tactic um for picking a gloom tide shipwreck because it gives you more choice that was the call out by the way i wanted to make there was that if you take the surging gloom tide awesome but just don't take the the glooming creeping gloom tide as your grand strategy because it's counterproductive to your ultimate goal yeah i think if you want that as a grand strat you kind of want to take one part of one shipwreck and put it in the least useful place for your opponent to be um and hope that they're in a position where they either have to make a choice between trying to stop that grand strat or trying to score points themselves. The other question I had, and it's more of a seasonal choice, is the Dritch Leech, which subtract one from casting rolls, unbinding rolls, and dispelling rolls for enemy wizards within 12 inches of the, 18 inches of the bearer. Massive, that's, that's a massive uh, effect. And given that there's a lot of wizards going around right now, it might force people to spend their primal magic dice when they don't want to. Um, is, is, is this an interesting pick for the current season? Um, you know, I don't think it's terrible as a pick. It's just one is not a lot. If you could pick something else, you know, even if you could pick like Arcane Tome on a different hero and get an extra cast and an extra unbind, like I'd rather have an extra unbind than I would be giving someone minus one to cast. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's a better pick outside of this general's handbook because without the primal magic dice, you might see a lot more failures I think because so. there's no more resources. I think so. I think where it makes where people are casting on, you know, the the mid teens, even up to the twenties on their big spells, minus one isn't as effective as where they're going to be limited to that, you know, that D the two D six pool, um, and their average rolls are going to be sevens. Uh, you know, so, but you know, if you're, we don't have a lot of great artifacts. If you're a bit stumped, you know, maybe you're taking anti magic tech. Maybe you're not running a wizard. Maybe you're getting a null zone enhancement or one of your heroes. Um, maybe you want to add that into that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great call, and, and it's certainly you know for people who might just be building around their local meta, and maybe you don't have that Seraphon player, and we're all kind of mid tier kind of casters. Maybe, maybe that's an option, but I think to your point, Surging Gloomtide, Potion, Potion of Hateful Frenzy might just be better options. Absolutely, you know, and it, local meta is really important to this. It, you know, if if you're seeing a lot of certain armies being played, some of these may be more useful or less useful. Where you're going to play as well is important because Rune of the Surging Gloomtide, how much scenery is there already on that table? You know, how much room are you going to have to put that down? 
I played an event recently where they there was like 12 pieces of terrain on the tables and I couldn't really use that Rune of the Surgeon Gloomtide artifact. Um, so yeah, it's worth bearing in mind as well. It's a lot of terrain. Uh, given yeah. that the average tournament runs eight, you, eight is really the, the sweet spot. It was a lot. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting event anyway. Um, Mount what Traits. About, yeah, what are yeah. your favourite Mount, Mount Traits? I mean, we've already talked about the spell law, so I'm not going to touch on that again. Uh, Mount Traits, you know, the my favourite for the Leviadon is the Reverberating Carapace, um, turning that Void Drum, which is the plus one to save, and then also um, the ability to give plus to hit on your Namati units from a 12 to a 15. That's just really nice. It just gives you that extra three inches on either side of the turtle, which is quite a big base. You know, say you're running a lot of sharks, that means you could get two or three more sharks in range of that plus one save. Um, I think that's the standout for the Leviadon. For the Deepmare, um, I think, you know, Void Chill Darkness is one that has been historically popular. Maybe it's not super useful because your king's not going to survive long enough. Um, so you might just want to go for Savage Ferocity just to get some extra attacks um, in when you're going to do as much damage as you can. But I think either of those are fine. I probably wouldn't pick Swift Fend in Paler because it's not going to come up enough to be useful. How, how does that rule trigger? I'm, I can't remember the uh, the Deep Mare Horn. So uh, Deep Mare Horn is when you charge on a two-up, you do the three mortals. Um, basically, this means that if when you're trying to roll that two up, you roll a six, uh, it's d6 instead of d3. It's just not very good. It's super situational. So I've got to do it. So I've got to charge and then I've got to roll a six to trigger that ability. It's a lot and then of you, yeah, and, and then you have to roll a, you know, a, a four or something to get value out of the d6 mortal. It's just too many what ifs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I think if you, if the heroes that could get that, I mean, it's only the Achillean King. If he was tankier and could spend more time charging throughout the game, maybe you'd think about it, but he just dies so quickly. You're going to get like one or two charges out of him again. Yeah, I can see where Savage Ferocity or Void Shield Darkness would come into play a lot. It's consistent, right? You can play it mm -hmm. around it as opposed to multiple things. Yeah, for sure. Um and then I think the other Leviathan mount traits, I don't think they're great. Um, the problem with Ancient is that it doesn't reduce rend by one. It just turns one rend into no rend. If it reduced rend by one, that could be really good. Sadly, it doesn't, so I wouldn't go for it. Um, and then minus one to wound on me It's only melee weapons that have a damage characteristic of one. I think you could take consider taking that because of the amount of... Um, stuff that's in the game that has a lot of one damage frequent attacks at the moment but because a lot of stuff is like hoarfrosted to hit on twos anyway it's not going to be that helpful um so i think reverberating carapace for me is always the pick i guess the denizen of the dark darkest depths would also complement the d6 mortal wound stomp because you're going into uh... no no way up no, I'm reading that different. I'm reading that differently. I'm reading that as wound characteristic one. Ignore what I just said. Sure. Uh, I, um, I was like, I was like, oh, if you go into rune one, you do d six mortal wounds on stomp, and then you might say, no, it doesn't work like that. But yeah, I mean, I do think if you're someone who's playing a lot of one, uh, one damage big units, you know, of one wound, your zombies, uh, maybe your, your more tech guard, I think, a damage one on most of their attacks, um, you know. 
if that's something you're facing a lot locally, then it might be worth thinking about. But if you're going to a tournament and you're not sure what you're going to play, probably not going to pick Carapus. up. Yeah, Carapus every day of the week. If the Ancient was like, there's an artifact in Suns where um, you reduce, you, it's, it's, it's the same rule, but then it also triggers mortals on a save roll of six. Mm -hmm. I'm a buyer buy there, but it doesn't have that second bit. So. Yeah, even if it just reduced it via one rather than changing it from if it's one to nothing, then that could be really good because you've got a high save, but it, it's just not quite there. No, nah, no. Nah. We've already talked a little bit about some of the spells, right? So Hawfrost, it's helpful, but you you do have a lot of good at hit and wound, and for for some units, it's probably just improving the Ren characteristic in in most situations. Is that mm. is that a fair fair assumption? Yeah, I think you wouldn't really take Hawfrost unless you're taking Shaman. Um, if you take Shaman, then having Hawfrost is just like okay, I've got this nice buff spell I can cast that will do something. Um, but I wouldn't take it on its own. And it's fair to assume that you're also not going to take Rupture on its own. No, just because, like, you don't know how often you're going to be playing people who use a lot of Endless Spells and Incarnates. Um, incarnates have really kind of dropped out because that spell got changed. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, Games Workshop bring, like, Dawnbringers 4 based around an Incarnate of Snow. Okay, different story. But right now, yeah. Incarnate representation rate has dropped dramatically since Rupture as a spell changed. Yeah, you know, um, again, you know, just keep an eye out if the meta changes. If we see Incarnates, it gains a lot of value. Blizzard. So are you taking Blizzard? Your wizards aren't very cheap, so you're getting them in threat range. Obviously, 46 is a great amount of mortal wounds. You yeah. can't negate you can't negate them. So even though you, some of your wizards have like a five up ward, the the, the damage from uh, Blizzard can't be negated. So if you roll that one, you're taking D threes. Yeah, I mean, I do think you know you're not super worried about rolling the ones because you've got wards on your little guys. Um, so you know. If your Tidecaster is casting that, oh, it can't be negated. Yeah, no, it can't be. It can't be you know, it can't, that, no, that, that's the key, right? It can't no, be negated. Yeah, that's yeah. just me. I told you know, I said at the beginning, I'm not super good with magic. Um, no, that's fine. That the, kind of proves my point. If you if you miscast, it, the five up ward will work. Mm -hmm. But if you get if you get Blizzard off the forty six, you roll a bunch of ones. They'll take D three damage per one. That be cut negated. So it's it's it is risk. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, as we kind of said earlier, if you're taking Shaman, Merciless Blizzard um, is helpful because you you can teleport and then you can try and do it the next turn. Obviously, you can't do it on the same turn because of that FAQ, but you can try and do it on the next turn if you know there's going to be a roll-off. If there isn't going to be a roll-off, I probably wouldn't be trying to do that play. Um, if someone's trying to come into you, then again, you've just got that threat range that gives you a bit of help. Um, yeah, I think it's... It's fine if you're taking Shaman. If you're taking a different list, you know, like we said, maybe if you're taking a Warlord Enhancement. But otherwise, I think playing into Magic just isn't Idna's strong point. Yeah, okay. So if I'm going one drop or two drops, not going extra spells, not going Shaman, you're more likely to go to one of your native spells like Steed of Tides or, you know, Counter Current or even Arcane Corrosion as opposed to going to one of these three? Is that kind of like the average yeah, summary? I, I think, you know, for me, it's just Seed of Tides is just always useful 
it helps me get points in games you know it helps helps you turn those really tight games where you're trying to scramble to get an extra point um it helps you out there um and yeah it's it's just a nice ability yeah do you find yourself in situations very often where you don't have a wizard at all? So I, I don't at the moment because I'm playing a lot of the Tidecaster. What I will say is that I think not taking a wizard at all is a viable list for Eidneth. I think if you're playing that Achillean King as your main hero, um, if you're running like, say, a Soul Scryer and, or Lotan, um, it is viable. If that is the case, uh, I would strongly suggest the Pouch of Dust. Cool. That was the my second question because you've got a lot of priests, as you said. There are three wizards: the you know, Eidolon uh, C, you've got the Tidecaster, and you've got the Underworlds um, Warband. So it, it is achievable. Uh, Pouch and Null does being the the choice if you find. Would, would you build a strategy around not taking a wizard, or would it just be the fact that you built your list, you found you don't have a wizard? Pouch. I think, um, you know, if you're playing more of like, I want the Achillean King and some eels, maybe I want a soul scryer with a couple of units of breathers that can kind of pop up somewhere. I definitely think like choosing Pouch of Noldas over say an Arcane Tome on one of those heroes is definitely a really valid option. And I would say that it could be quite beneficial, um, particularly because of being able to stop magical dominance, even if you're out of unbind range. I do miss Arcane Tome flaming weapon. I really do miss it. Do you have a favourite grand strategy for the current season? Yeah, so for me, Kelly in Pursuit, it just, I'm running a list at the moment that is nine sharks and a turtle. So that's 10 Achillean units on the board. Um, I just need to keep three of them alive because they're so fast and they're going to be able to get within enemy territory. Um, I've scored it in every game except one that I've played. Um, I think it just ties in really well with that list. I think if you're playing um, less of kind of an Achillean-based list and you're looking more at those Namati units, the Creeping Gloom Tide is an option. Um, just bear in mind that it is fairly easy for your opponent to stop. Um, and it could be a situation where it gets you more points where you're already winning. Um Slaughter of Sorcery from the GHB. Uh, again, if we're talking about not taking any wizards um, in your list, like maybe you're running Eels and Achillean King, that could be a good one to pick because you're going to want to kill your opponent's heroes anyway. Um, so that would be one that I'd potentially be looking at. Um, and Spellcasting Savern, you know, like we've talked about, um, your Tidecaster is quite tanky because of having that ward and a decent save. Um, so it's not a terrible choice because I've forgotten nightmares as well. And, you know, they, they are quite easy to keep safe. Plus with Riptide being a range of 18, you can be throwing spells out and keeping your wizard protected with the ward if it's near Lookout Sir abilities as well. Um, yeah, and you, could, you can do stuff like garrison the Tidecaster into a boat and then you're getting an extra save stack and minus one to hit. So, yeah, I, I think Spellcasting Savant's a decent choice. Um, yeah, I, I think I wouldn't so much be looking for Dominion of the Deep Ones just because you have to keep that turtle alive, which can be tricky if they've got mortal wounds. Um, and also your opponent might have quite a lot of monsters, which you can't control. 
one of uh, the players at my grand tournament, this is, mind you, before the cron spine change, but one of the players at my tournament, shout out Chris Welfare from the Morty, Mortally Wounded podcast, he uh, ran, I think it was he ran a cron spine and the turtle, or he might have just run a cron spine, no turtle. So technically, you know, keeping the cron spine alive, being, um, no, 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 so the cron spine would die, so he didn't care about it. Um and he'd still score his grand strategy. I'm like, you're a cheeky boy. Mm, I think, you know, it's it's not impossible, but it's just tricky because, like, it's so dependent on your opponent. And I, I personally don't like grand strats that are going to be hard based on what my opponent has. So, for example, overshadow, um, you know, that can be really difficult if your opponent has a ton of battle line units um, or it could be really easy, but you don't know and you can't really control it. Whereas, say, with a Kelly in Pursuit, that's like on you to keep units alive. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly because there's some matchups where it just becomes completely impossible, like to do Slaughter of Sorcery. Like, it just becomes incredibly hard. But then sometimes you go up against Corn and it like the box is completely ticked and you don't have to worry. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's another reason to think about Slaughter of Sorcery is, you know, what's your meta look like? You know, if are there loads of corn players, you know, are there soul bite players where you, you want to kill those units anyway? And because if you don't, you're going to be having a horrible time. Like, think about that when you're picking your grand strap. Are there battle tactics that you use more often than others? And bonus question, turn one battle tactic seems to be the bane of everyone's existence. Yeah, so um, I think... If we look at the book Battle Tactics first, one thing to think about is Assassins of the High Tide is a battle tactic that you're going to want to pick almost every game because you should be killing at least two enemy units during high tide um, with attacks because obviously you're not doing a lot of magic damage, so shooting or combat. So thinking about the fact that, okay, well, that's going to be my turn three or if I reverse the type, my turn two battle tactic is, you know, playing around the others, knowing that that's when you're going to want to score that. Um, Predators of the Deep. So this is where, again, that shark list is kind of having quite a good time at the moment. Um, picking an enemy unit that has a wounds characteristic eight and killing it with um, an Alapex unit that can be, that's like really hard if you've got like two sharks, you know, uh, even four sharks. If you've got nine sharks, 12 sharks, it becomes a lot easier, right? Like, you know, um, oh, hey, that KO boat, it's got 10 wounds, you know, and I haven't hit it yet. I'm definitely going to kill that with sharks, right? You know, because my list is all sharks. Um, so I think that's worth bearing in mind um, when... Uh, when thinking about it also um if you're playing against that list if you have a way to kind of do one wound to yourself that can deny them the ability to pick that unit for that battle tactic go um, go find some damn terrain go take the d3 mortal wounds exactly then... yeah exactly um revenge of the namati if you're running those namati units you know, you're going to be in a position at some point where you want to kill a hero or monster, whether that be a lot of shooting for your Reavers, shooting into a hero, shooting into a monster, or that be, you know, that big unit of thralls charging in and hitting something and, and really trying to hack it down. Um, denied trespassers, you're scoring this every game. You should be IDK players, you should be scoring this 
every game, right? You wait for your opponent to be in a position where they've put a single unit within 12 um, of um, your boat and then you're killing that unit or you're making them redeploy away from that boat and you're scoring that. You should be scoring that every game. Remember, the more boats you have, the more spread out they are. It makes that grand strat harder, so you don't want to take that, but it makes this battle tactic easier. Pick the time where that's going to be an easy score and take it. Um, trapped in the undercurrents, you're probably not going to pick as much because you have to retreat and charge, bearing in mind that if you're retreating a lot of units, then your opponent has a chance to redeploy as well um, because you're no longer in combat with them. That just seems like a tougher bait and trap. Yeah, basically it is. Um, so you're probably not going to be picking that because of bait and trap as well, being an easier option in that situation. Ishran Defiance, you know, as I said, um, this is situational, but it can be when it's on, it's on. So another situation where this is really good is if you're lucky enough to have tabled your opponent um, and you've got an Ishran hero and there is an objective um that is in their territory think about like letting them keep control of that until after you're killed all their units so that you can then just run over that hero and pop them on to get an easy battle tactic um yeah and then and then based on the conversations we've had earlier today intimidate the invaders quite an easy one for you to score bait and trap we've already referred to uh surround and destroy another easy one for you uh, leading to the Maelstrom, I guess, depending on the build, given that you might not have some heroes, but if you've got the Archelian King, definitely leading to mm -hmm. the Maelstrom would be a good one. Yeah, um, I think all of these are quite good for us, except for um, Endless uh, Expropriation. You know the one. Expropriation, uh, yeah. Yeah, Magical what? Mayhem. I think those yeah. two are the hardest ones for us that I probably wouldn't ever pick. Um, just because of our magic not being up there. <laughs> yeah, you, and you definitely you definitely don't want to rely on um, Blizzard to get off Magical Mayhem, and otherwise you've got Tidecaster doing D3 Mortal Wounds. So unless you've got, like, one wound idiot left to pass Battleshock, you can, you're confident, like, there's no ward save, maybe Magical Mayhem, but it's a pretty risky spell for you. Yeah. Um, and Battle Tactic. I, I think I would be avoiding to pick that, you know, even if there's something with one wound left, like it's, you're still going to have to cast that spell. You're still going to, you know, it's, it's tricky. Reprisal um, in an Achelian King list, you're going to want to score this because your Achelian King's going to die at some point after doing his big hit. Um, if you're taking a small hero, like a Tidecaster, there are times where I'll let someone kill my Tidecaster because I've got what I wanted out of that Tidecaster, which is the rituals that still apply whether you're alive or not, um, and the artifact to put the boat down. My boat's down, I've got my rituals. I don't need to just be casting Mystic Shield for the rest of the game. Letting someone kill that Tidecaster to give me a battle tactic can be the right choice. Um, so do bear that in mind and think about, you know, uh, do I want to let my opponent kill my general just so that I make sure I can score five battle tactics? Um, but yeah, magical dominance. Now with this, I, the only thing I would say is remember that things that happen at the start of the hero phase, you if it's your hero phase, you can kind of control the order there a bit. So when you're rolling off to see uh, when the primal dice happen, that's happening at the start of that turn. 
um, before you choose a battle tactic. You can wait to see if you get your primal dice. Um, you know, you could wait to be on a turn where you're going second, where you've got two casts on that Tidecaster instead of one. Um, and obviously making sure that you're out of unbind range or saving it until later in the game where your opponent doesn't have any wizards left. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and keep an eye out for heroic willpower and get the extra unbind. Yeah. And obviously uh, with uh, the battalion that lets you get a potential primal, extra primal magic dice so the opponent could throw an extra dice at you. And if just... your opponent has that pouch of null dust, um, because that applies to spells cast anywhere on the board, or their corn and they've got blood tithe because they can unbind that even if they don't have any heroes in range. Um, so yeah, just don't get caught out on that one. If I'm going for a first turn battle tactic, uh, you've got a couple of options. Magical dominance, you know, you could put your tide caster right at the back of the board. Um, if you get a primal dice, you cast Steed of Tides, um, and then you've got a pretty good chance of getting that off. Um, if your territory is like an 11 inch line, so you know, where your territory doesn't go up to that whole half of the board, or where your territory is kind of uh, down the sides and the flanks aren't in the territory on a couple of battle plans. You know, um, intimidating the invaders early on is fine, you know, where you're going to want to come a bit forward or you want to move to the side. Um, otherwise, because of your high speed, um, I think you're looking um, to be doing um, surround, surround and destroy turn one most of the time but you do have options you know just bear in mind when you're deploying um what you want your first turn battle tactic to be because that's where people tend to go wrong is where they think about that after they've deployed and then they're not in the position to have the choice to score yeah i'm actually going to be doing a whole show on battle tactic selection probably in the next couple of weeks so uh, i know it's something that kind of catches people off guard especially they get to the start of the turn and they pick their battle tactic based on like not setting it up and you know, thinking about sequences. And to your point, what's easy to score, what is sometimes conditional, then what is ex endless expropriation where it's like, it's it, it, not it, but it's not that valuable. Yeah. There's a lot of battle tactics in this GHB that benefit the high movement. So just bear that in mind. That is a real strength of our army. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple of lists to go through, and um, I imagine this one's going to be very easy to talk about. So it is the Fufan list, which is Archelian Pursuit uh, Inspired, Double Battle Regiment. You've got the Tidecaster as the General, Teaching of the Turk, Turk, Turk Scroll, Turk Roll, uh, Rune of Surging Gloom Tide and the Steed of Tides. You've got Brotan, uh, the Warden of the Soul Ledgers. You've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine Sharkies under the Bloodthirsty Shiver and a uh, Leviathan, which has the, um, the Carapace. So 1992 drops, 98 wounds. What's going on? What do I need to know to understand the madness here? Yeah, so I think I want to start by saying this is a very skewed list. This is my Six Nations list, which is a team event. And if people don't know team events, um, there's a whole pairing process about what armies you're going to play. Um, and what that normally means is that you can avoid certain matchups that won't be very good. And you can play more into matchups or certain battle plans that are more favorable. Um, so just to kind of clarify that this is designed for that team's format. That said, I have had, you know, 
success. I've had a 5-0 and two 4-1s with variations of this list, all running nine sharks, a turtle and a tidecaster. Um, so, you know, it is definitely very viable in singles. I, I don't want, I if you're more of a Ideneth collector who likes to play the army but is less chasing the meta and less tournament chasing, I, I wouldn't say go out and buy a load of sharks because it's likely to change. Um, but if you've already got them or you're a loser like me who's obsessed with tournaments and has so many Ideneth toys anyway that four more sharks wasn't a big deal, um, it's it's a really strong list. So to talk through it, Obviously, we know about those exploding sixes. Uh, what we've got here is four shots on each of those nine sharks. So you're looking at 36 shots, um, threes, threes, rend one, damage D3, sixes to hit exploding into two wound rolls. Um, you've got another eight shots there on your Leviadon, which is the same profile, but without the exploding sixes that puts you up to 44 shots. Um, with a 24-inch range and 14-inch movement on the Sharks and 10-inch movement on the Leviadon. Your opponent is not staying out of range of the shooting. You know, they're going to, they can hide behind terrain with some stuff, but something's getting killed, right? Um, you've got a ton of combat damage because those sixes to hit also explode in combat. So you've got your crew exploding. You've got your jaws exploding. It's damage everywhere you've got your roar from the turtle all of those sharks or as many of them as you want to keep within range of that turtle are getting that plus one to save so you know your turn one your plus two to save on all those sharks you're in cover and you're getting the save from that turtle um, and then you've got stuff like all out defense that you can do as well if your opponent you know i've i i played two games at my last event with this list um daughters of cain put 15 snakes into me uh KO put a load of engine riggers and their boats into me. Um, I lost one or two sharks in those, and then I tabled my opponent in their own turn using these sharks hitting back because of the output and the save stacking. It's just really, really strong. Talking about the heroes quickly, we've got that Tidecaster. That's those two rituals. We've got the teachings of the Tursko. Um, that's letting you reverse that tide or not, depending on your choice. Rune of the Gloom Tide, that's putting down an extra boat or an extra two pieces of boat on the board. Blocking movements. You know, if your opponent has a non-flying monster that has a base that's more than three inches uh, wide at its kind of width, if you put that terrain three inches away, from another piece of terrain, that monster is not coming through that gap and it's not getting into your sharks that are hiding behind that. You know, if they've got big units of zombies, how many zombies are they getting around that boat when they make the charge and into combat? So you're thinking about how can you use that to your advantage? Can you set yourself up for a battle tactic next turn by putting that piece of terrain in a place where you know your opponent's going to be sending a unit? Seed of Tides is my favourite spell. It just lets you have that manoeuvrability. You know, it lets you pop and get an objective that your opponent's left unguarded. It lets you just get your Tidecaster into trouble or out of trouble as and how you like it, you know. Uh, it's just a really useful utility spell. Lotan, he is the guy. Now, if you're an old school IDK player like me, we remember how bad this he's the coolest model he's got his octopus everyone loves the model but he had awful 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 rules for so long he was um, so bad he was yeah. so bad for such a long time you know i think he was like 80 points at one point like maybe even less and people still didn't play him because of how bad he was right 
Now, what is it that makes low 10 so good now? Let me tell you, my friends, it is plus one to wound, wholly within 12, which affects mounts. Yeah, it, unlike the Eidolon, this affects mounts. So all of those sharks, if they're hanging around near low tan or low tans near them, they're wounding on twos on all their attacks in combat. If that Achillean Leviathan, your fins normally wounding on threes, if low tans hanging around, wounding on twos. He is just buffing the damage on this army in combat. For anyone who's in range he also gives you a nice little once per game ritual ability to pick a unit in your hero phase and to the next hero phase they get one of those rituals regardless of the turn now this isn't super super useful but sometimes you just want to give yourself that plus one to charge maybe you want to make sure your leviadon's going to get into combat maybe you want to do that retreat two units charge two units and you want to get something out of the unit you're retreating so you have a chance to do some mortals it's just a nice little bonus and for 110 points he's another hero there um that's going to help you give out commands he's going to give you an extra unbind with that heroic action if you need to and he's no slouch in combat himself you know he's got that five up ward he's got eight attacks with that octopus um that is, I think it's threes and threes, rend one, damage one, um, because he gives himself that plus one to wound. Um, you know, so he's he's no slouch. The last thing I want to mention as well about the turtle is the totem keyword. So this is something that is really overlooked, but totem allows you to issue commands to units wholly within 18, um, even if you're not a hero. So that big base that turtle is helping you issue commands to those sharks that can't issue commands to themselves. And even if your heroes die, you still have a source of issuing commands. Um, oh yeah, and an unleash hell from a turtle. No one wants to take that either. No. One burning question of thank you so much for going into incredible depth. Because like on the surface, you're like, great, okay, nine sharks, turtle, two heroes, great. But you can just hear that it's the nuance of how you play with the Sharks. Um, maybe two questions before we move on to the next list. First off, if you, you did say this was a skewed teams list, would you drop some of those Sharks back? Uh, if you were going to go to a, I don't know, a, a major tournament you know, in the next couple of months, would you scale back some Sharks? Or is it more about like the artifact command trait options? Or how would you tweak this for a, a GT? Um, I think, you know, I have played this at three events, you know, I've played slight variations um, where, so I went 5-0 at a smallish event um, at the TSN Arena in Nottingham and 4-1 uh, and came sixth at the LGT, which is, you know, a large event with, I think, 80-something players um, and, uh, you know, a lot of very high quality players from uh, international teams in the UK and Europe uh, is that instead of low tan, I went dead on 2000 points and I took a knight encounter as an ally. Um, knight encounter as an ally, uh, it just gives you that auto unbind once per game that maybe gives you some more insurance into some magic matchups where you're um, where you're less sure of what you're going to play. I think low tan is better. I've played low tan at one event. You know, I played Russ, my teammate in Team England with Starborn. Um, he we handshook after turn one because I'd killed everything that was valuable. Um, he did have some bad luck, but you know that was like a thirty to two victory or something to me. Um, 
I played uh, Matt Roberts, who was playing KO. He's from the Welsh team. Um, he outfitted me. He killed one shark, I think. And then I killed his entire army on his own turn. Uh, and we handshook in turn two. Um, you know, at that event, three of the games I played uh, were less than 20 minutes long. Uh, I ended up losing one game because I was playing on a battle plan called the Frigid Zephyr um, against Corn. <laughs> Um, and normally Corn's a good matchup for this list, but the Frigid Zephyr is not what you want to be playing. Um, so I think, you know, just bear in mind, like, there are those kind of bad matchups. It's not, like, always going to 5-0 for you, but it's a very strong list. And, you know, I would feel confident that I should at least be getting a 4-1 at every event with this list. All right, well, yeah, now you've unlocked the second question. So question: the original first question I was going to ask you was, how do you keep Lotan in range given that it's a melee-only buff, so it's not going to help you with shooting? Um, are you just using a run roll? Are you Any other shenanigans to keep that within 12 inches? Or if it just happens, it happens. So you've got three options for keeping Lotan in range. The classic option is just to run him every turn. Um, and just keep him moving up because you want to move your turtle 10 most turns because you want to shoot, you want to have the option to charge. And um, so, you know, low 10 moves six on his own. So you can just kind of run him and keep him up next to that turtle. And then, um, you know, you're getting a good amount of units. Even if you're not getting everyone in range, that's okay. You're getting enough to get some value out of that. Um, your second option, which is a bit more techie, is to cast Seed of Tides onto Lotan and then to put Lotan where you want him to be. So say you're in a position where you're playing three objectives in the middle on a battle plan, you could Seed of Tides Lotan up so that he's standing between two of those objectives and then you're getting cover onto both of those objectives for the buff. Um, and then your third option is to use the garrison rules to your advantage. Um, now, because we can place a um, Gloomtide Shipwreck that's, a, that's garrisonable by Lotan um, in our deployment zone, and then also because you've got the ability to put that extra shipwreck down, um, you can put Lotan into that, and then that makes his buff range bigger um, because you're measuring from the shipwreck for the buff range rather than just measuring from Lotan himself. Um, and uh, it can also get you some extra movement because you just have to be within six and come out with, um, within six. I've forgotten that the Gloom Tide was defensible because you're starting to see terrain features now going from defensible to impassable. And uh, I, I, a trick that I used to love with my Gloom Spike gets being able to extend the range of Scragrot, but now the, um, the my terrain feature is now impassable. Good call. Good. Also, this is... Now, this is something that some people might consider unsporting. So I think it's important to understand what your TO's position is and whether it's allowed at your event. Um, but garrisoning into combat is something that is allowed within the core rules of AOS. Um, so bear in mind that you can put a, uh, a ship breakdown. If your opponent goes within three of it, you could put Lotan into it and garrison them into combat. So they're trapped in Lotan in the garrison. Some people consider that unsporting. Um, some people explicitly allow it. Six Nations Pack says it's explicitly allowed. Um, so just bear in mind that before you do that, it's, it could be considered a gotcha play. No, it, good, good call out, especially for some of those obscure rules. And I know people are still 
getting used to garrisoning. I know some people even don't even use regular terrain rules. So like build that up over time. And I think to your point, just have that conversation. Um, I, I am conscious of time and I know our time is run, running out. And I, I, do, I love this conversation, by the way. I think we could talk forever, Hazel. This has been so good. I know you do have a second list and I do have a bunch of questions that um, the Discord has asked me that I want to rapid fire. At some sure. Point. I'll just but, rapid fire through this list then um, and then we can spend more time on Q&A. So um, Kelly and King, Unstoppable Fury, we talked about that. That's your Smash King. Potion of Hateful Frenzy, give himself those buffs, extra attack, uh, and Savage Ferocity for some extra mount traits. You're just sending him in, getting him in to as many units as possible, doing as much damage before he dies. Uh, we've got the Isharan Soul Scryer in the Briomdar sub-faction and then three units of 20 Reavers. So you can pop all these people off the board drop them down nine away or, you know, within 18 for your shooting. And then you're putting out a ton of shooting from those Reavers. Um, this is, they're protected because they're staying off the board until you want them to come in with that Soul Scryer. Um, and then you've got Curse just because he's a priest. And if they happen to go within nine of you, um, the Reavers are going to benefit from that. And Pouch of Null does to protect you when you are on the board from getting hit by those Horde Clear spells that could really do a number on those Reaver units. Um, Severeth, um, oh, we, Severeth is a complicated unit we could talk a lot about. To keep it short, he's got a ward. He moves 24 inches, which is crazy. Um, he is very good shooting. He can move in your shooting phase 12 away, so he can come up, shoot something, and then run away. You can force your opponent to have to shoot him. He can just go off and get objectives. He's just a really solid ally pick and just adds to that shooting that's in this list. Um, and then we've got our old friend, the turtle, um, to give us those hit buffs and save buffs on our Reavers, monstrous actions, some combat damage and some shooting, all in a one drop. So you have that choice of generally going second uh, and then hoping to double turn. Your games are going to be over very fast. You're not going to win all your games. Uh, but, you know, if you're someone who wants to play Ideneth and then wander around tables annoying people and having a beer, this is the list for you. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and if people want to know more about the intricacies of Severus, that's an ally coming out from the Lumineth Realm Lords, uh, you can check out my video with Lumineth Realm Lords. I did a, a great video and uh, my guest did a very good analysis of how uh, Severus is a wonderful hero sniper, especially Blizzard Wizards and your Antorian Locuses, where Severus' crazy movement, some of the shenanigans that Severus does uh, at the point value is, is such a good such a good choice yeah and i think you know for an Ideneth ally you can't go wrong with severith uh if you want to include an ally then you know severith is a great pick while we don't have enough time to really go through this i just did want to acknowledge um over the weekend um aaron new aaron newbombs um went five and oh with this list an idk list at the socal open there's been a couple of other good lists lately i saw uh paul wright from america did another i think four one performance so you're starting to see over the last month or so um some really good scores being racked up from um from from uh, IDK players. Uh, we won't go through this and maybe just one quick call out is that the battle mage will change very soon. So that wild form is changing as a city of Sigma ally. So you won't be able to get that plus two, but for someone who's looking for a bit of variety, I think we've shown off three different lists 
um, and, and, and why you don't have to just go completely sharks. You can go to multiple different builds, multiple different enclaves, um, lots of great variety. And I'm sure there are great uh, eel lists and, you know, people building around certain things. Hey, is there anything that you want to quickly mention on here before we get into the, the Discord questions? Um, you know, just well done, Aaron. You know, great to see a 5-0 with a fellow IDK player. Um, you know, and I think this is really positive to show that there are this other list that you can play. Um, and I hope that people watching can take this as inspiration to go and try different things and see what works. The other call that I'll make as well is um, this is an interesting use of the Antorian Acolyte Battalion. So going four drops, this would be three drops, I think it is. So you would get your extra primal dice while not trading off too much when it comes to your deployment. So um, if, if you're not too worried about one drop and you want to get a couple of extra primal dice, not a bad way. Yeah, and it's just giving you all those options to get those charge buffs, um, to get those rend buffs to get those wound buffs those hit buffs on those thralls to make them into those super effective units yeah and uh, aaron writes for wohammer as well so no doubt you'll probably see an article on wohammer go check it out aaron's a great writer and a, a good player so uh, well worth checking out are you ready for the rapid fire round uh hit me all right rapid fire round nothing too crazy so um demon gimp <laughs> The first question. So Demon Gibbs saying, uh, I'm new to the faction and want to learn, uh, lean into Nomadi heavy playstyle. How do I pull it off? So I think, you know, a good start would be to look at Aaron's list that we just mentioned um, and to look at the heroes in more detail and to see how he's managed to get those buffs. Um, you know, things like the Thrall Master that's giving you exploding sixes. Uh, on the hits. Dom Hain is the sub-faction that's making those thrills have a chance to charge twice, fight twice, charge twice, fight twice. Uh, you know, an Eidolon to give you a wound buff, Horfrost to give you a rend buff. Just look at the ways to buff those units um, and then make them as effective as you can and, and really play into that. Eldritch Dad asking, is IDK a new player-friendly faction? So I think there's two elements to that which is if you're a new player in terms of painting. Um, Ideneth are quite tricky models for a hobbyist and a painter. Uh, they're not easy to paint. There's a lot of different textures. Um, there's a lot of things like flat skin on eels and sharks that can be much more difficult because you can't use techniques like dry brushing as effectively um, on them. So if you're new to the hobby side, you know, things like flying bases that can be a bit fiddly to use, um, I would maybe consider going for a more friendly hobby army. In terms of play style, um, I think they absolutely can be. I think they're an easy uh, to learn hard to master army um, and you know just pick what you like and go out and play them and you'll, you'll get grips with it and enjoy it they're really fun my advice would be if you have the option and the patience uh, maybe make this your second army go buy a cheap stormcast army from like dominion or something get some practice and just paint just get some fun foundations and then move to IDK. Uh, can you do it? Absolutely. Um, should you do it? Obviously, it's up to you. But I think you might find that if you start with IDK, you'll look back at your models after you got a bit of experience and go, oh, I wish I should do that again. You know, I wish I held off because you've gotten some experience. You now understand painting. So, uh, and it depends. Yeah, it depends if you're someone who really enjoys spending a lot of time in their hobby room painting or if you're someone who just wants to play the game, um, you know. 
Ross AOS, I think we've already acknowledged this one, is Thralls and Reaver heavy lists still viable? We have talked a couple of things around the Enclaves and how you might do it uh, because Ross Dog, uh, while we know everyone loves sharks, his dice hate them. So, uh, Okay, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think we've seen from, you know, like looking at Aaron's list, we saw a list that played Thralls. Uh, we've seen a list that I've written that leans into Reavers. You know, there are lots of different ways to play Reavers. There are lots of different ways to play Thralls. You can go heavy on them and really try and maximize their efficiency. Uh, or you can just take some screens even. Uh, you could even look at something like an MSU uh, list that is running tons and tons of units of 10 Thralls and then is playing into uh, Fight First on High Tide and using, you know, I'm going to screen with some but you're not going to get them all um so i would just encourage you to go out and experiment and you did mention the eidolon of the sea giving bravery 10 uh being a great way to also boost up your um your namadi exactly and then also lotan um as we've said that he gives you that ritual uh, to your next hero phase on a single unit. Now, in my shark list, that's not super useful, but if you've got a unit of 20 or even 30 thrills or reavers, Lotan can be giving them a five up ward until your next hero phase, uh, regardless of where they are, regardless of what turn it is. So that's another option. Yeah, good shot. HLA asking, how viable is a 12 plus ear list? Um, I don't know is the answer right now. However, what I would say is we talked about the coherency rules. So if you're going to look at doing this, I'm thinking six is the magic number. It's the magic number where you're not worried about that coherency. Um, I'd be looking at more Sargard over Ishlane Guard, um, and I'd be looking at playing them in the Iron Rack sub-faction so that you can either give them that run and charge on any turn that you want as a heroic action, or you can give them that retreat so they can come out and charge again and get those bonuses. Consider Volturnos, uh, consider Volturnos and Achillean King and together, two Iron Rack heroes that can do the heroic action. Volturnos to give extra attacks on high tide, the King to give an extra turn of fight first, you know, those pit buffs from the Kings, an Eidolon of the Storm to give them some wound buffs, you know, go out and try things. But, you know, I think there is an eel list out there. Um, I, 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 yeah. I agree. I think I would be looking at uh, Iron Jaws and maybe getting inspiration from piggy lists and seeing how they, you mm. know, some piggy, like two blocks of six and a couple of threes, or you do multiple threes and, and board control. Uh, I think there's definitely an option, but how you do it, maybe it's more like also like Boingroff Bounders where you're just doing it a lot of mortal wounds on the charge. Yeah, so when I, I played at War in the Heartlands um, about a year ago um, and I ran an incarnate and then all threes of eels, Volturnos and the Achillean King, uh, and it was just charging in all those eels that are MSU that are just doing a lot of mortal wounds, um, and then using the fight first and the buffs from the King of Volturnos while having that incarnate as a kind of pin piece. So that was when the eels were, I think, about 20 to 30 points more expensive per three, mm. and the Kings and Volturnos were more expensive. So, you know, you could get a lot more eels for the price that I paid then now. Scott D asking, placement for the terrain, is it worth splitting it? it that depends. <laughs> um, so is it worth splitting it? What do you want from your terrain? Are you trying to give 
units of 10 Namati or five up ward? Are you trying to create a barrier that your opponent has to work around if they try and alpha you? Are you trying to create a big footprint so that Lotan can sit in it and give out a big buff range? What do you want from your boats? Ask yourself what you want the boat to do and then make your split decision accordingly. You're doing a cracking job for a bunch of random questions coming out of nowhere, so I'm going to give you shouts. Uh, Real Finger Gun saying, um, it's, a, it's a really good question, is do you have a trigger for when you flip the tide? So um, they don't they seem to be able to crack the code in regards to when is the right time to flip if the choice is there. Okay, so rather than saying like this army, yes, this army, no, what I'm going to say is this as a principle. Is your opponent going to early on in the game come into you and try and do a lot of damage? So, you know, are they going to send a big unit of iron jaws, a big unit of pigs, a bloodthirster? Are they going to have shooting and you want that ritual that lets you zone out that shooting? If so, you think, I don't want to flip the tides. If they are an army that's going to play in the midboard and you need to do as much damage as possible, uh, if they're a slower moving army, uh, if it's a situation where you think, you know what, I can really just smash this person off as quickly as possible, yeah, flip the tights. And the only way you're going to learn that is through making mistakes and trying. So what I would suggest is the first time you're playing with flip the tights, flip tights in all your games and then play uh, an event where you flip tights in none of your games. Um, and see, learn how it feels both ways and then get an idea about where it works and it doesn't work. Innuendo asking, what is the biggest mistake IDK players make? Um, I think underestimating the fragility of the army and misunderstanding uh, that the game is five battle rounds, not three battle rounds. Um, you know, it's fine to go behind on points at the end of the game, at the beginning of the game, if you know you're going to be ahead on points at the beginning of the game. Um, you have to have the plan for, okay, my eels are going to go in and they're going to do damage, but what's going to happen to those eels next turn and the turn after that? You know, um, play on the clock as well. Learn chess clocks. And I, this isn't a gamey thing. This is just about learning to manage your own time and making sure time is used effectively and get used to playing five turn, uh, turns of your Warhammer and five turns of your opponent's Warhammer because it is a five battle round game um, and you need to be scoring those points over them all. I don't think IDK really struggles with the, the um, obviously, you know, um, everyone can take time. Actually, I think, you know what, one of the cool things about chess clocks, if you are implementing a chess clock, is you both have equal amount of time. And while you don't have a lot of models to move and a lot of nuance, um, it does give you the freedom to sit back and, and take a couple of minutes to actually plan out your turn as opposed to feeling rushed and, and trying to get through five rounds. Exactly. As someone who plays a lot of IDK, I will often have at least an hour left on my clock at the end of a game. Um, but my opponent will be using up almost all of their time. Make your opponent use their half of the game and you get your half of your game. Don't let you get a third of the game and your opponent get two thirds of the game because they're cheating you out of points. I wouldn't say quite cheating, but like definitely like, okay. like I, would, I wouldn't go to that that length. But there is there can there can be at times where an army is na uh, naturally slow, and if you do um, play slow, 
probably not intentionally, but, um, you know, you might be rushed and you might not get the full five. So, uh, yeah, it, sure. it, it does help. Yeah. I would... <laughs> I, what I will say is, and I'm not naming names, but there are players who sometimes at a very high end who, if things aren't going in their favour, they will slow you right down. Yeah, um, it can be weaponized. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but for the most people probably listening to this, it's probably not an intentional thing that people are trying no. to slow play you. No, but there will, there will be exceptions, and I guess. Mm. This but you want to very... finish your game. You want to finish your game. You don't want to be talking out turn five. You don't want to be talking out turn four. Hundred percent. Finish, finish your game. And this is one of the problems you find with Nurgle. Like I find a lot of Nurgle players struggle to get to round five and it's not Nurgle's fault, but Nurgle's strength comes in, in round five, not round one and two. And if you deny them the opportunity to go the full five rounds, that's actually, I think partially why their win percentage is not as strong as it should be. So uh, just, just some random theory here. Two last questions and I will let you go to work. I promise. Uh, who are your best allies for IDK? So we've already talked Severeth. Uh, we already saw an example of the current Cities of Sigmar Battle Mage, although that will change when the, the book is officially released. Any other allies? Would you ally in the new Stormcast um, dragon that we've seen, our, uh, our new priest dragon? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I don't think for Stormcast, the two allies that I would say you should look at is Night Encanter for an auto-unbind. Um, and I can't remember the name, but it was a sculpt that came out at the beginning of this edition uh it's a knight something that's an archer that can pick a point uh the um, night judicator night judicator with the two doggos yeah and you you're picking a point and then you're doing some mortal wounds to everything in that point that can be quite helpful because we don't have a ton of mortal wounds in our army um and it's a piece that can kind of just sit at the back of the board and do stuff um oh other wings classic can't go wrong with other wings make your opponent shoot them run them onto a point to get some points without having to commit your army um if you look at lumineth lawmaster is a great pick um ability to deploy in an objective count is 10 once per game i think can auto cast on a nine but you can add primals to it now uh yeah just a, a very decent pick as well um yeah I know in the past I've seen some storm uh, so, so, so IDK list using the Stormcast Chariot, and now that it's gone to 150, 12 wounds, three up save, uh, it can be a, a quite a good tank. Uh, yeah, I, for I haven't sure. seen it for a while, but it's, it, it was popular for a little bit. I'm not someone who plays with allies a lot because I quite like thematic armies. Um, I like that my Ideneth are generally my Ideneth, um, but. There are a lot of good ally choices. And again, just go out, experiment. If there's a model that you really like and you think it has a place in your list, try and see if you enjoy it. Final question and one that I've been saving up for a while. Uh, Yavin saying, what are your hopes and dreams for a new Battle Tome and, and or fourth edition? So I know you've been committed to IDK for such a long time, playing it for ages. You, What do you hope for? What, do you, what, do you, what would you like to see when it's updated next? Could we have some new models, please, Games Workshop? Could we have... Oh, I, I would like crabs. I would like a big crab or some little crabs. I would like a, a more octopus or squid, um, you know, a kraken, something like that. You know, I don't want more elves. I don't want just like an elf guy hanging around, walking around. I don't want more Namati. Um, I want, give me those sea monsters. Give me those fantastic creatures um, that you don't see anywhere else. Really dial into what makes Eidness special. Um, for rules, I would think I would like to see 
Um, and this might be controversial, AOS 4 go to index hammer for a bit, um, just because I feel like we've power creeped so far that if I suggested they make changes to fix and balance Eidneth, all I'd really be doing is be like power creep and make the numbers bigger. Um, and I'd rather we just have that kind of flattening and go back. It, we shouldn't be in a game where um, anything that doesn't hit on threes and threes is bad. And unless you can get on twos and twos, like REN2 or REN3, then it's not an effective unit. Like in AOS 1, Blood Warriors were like an elite unit and they hit on threes and wounded on fours, you know, like... Stormcast, Stormcast Liberators used to terrorize people with their four up save. You would staunch defender on them for plus one save, three up, and there was so little mortal wounds, so little rend that these little durable liberators would cause people nightmares. You're right. There is a lot of yeah. rend, there's a lot of mortal wounds, and it's probably been the highest amount of mortals we've seen in my time. I could say, like, give thralls two wounds so that. They can stick around and you can use those recursion abilities. But at that point, I'm just saying, like, power creep the game. Um, and I'd rather they just flatten than just keep making things, numbers go bigger. And just to just to add, uh, you know, insult to injury, uh, the current where we are sitting, I don't know how, how much of a law master you are, Hazel, but where we are currently are, which is in Antor, we are literally on the cusp of the Kraken Sea that splits us between where the uh, the ogres live in the. the oh, north. don't say that. Literally, if you look at the map on Gur, where Antor is, it's it's this snowy region. Then it's cut off with the Kraken Sea, and on the image is actually even a little Kraken on the 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 map. So, uh... <laughs> where's my Kraken, G Dubs? Come on, where give is me, it? Give me an IDK Kraken. Give me yeah. a zombie. Give me a zombie kraken for the uh, the soul black grave lords. Give me like two versions of it. Everyone gets a kraken. Look under your seat. There's a kraken. You know. What? Let's see what happens. Um, the crumbspine. Yeah. No, not the crumbspine. Boo. We hate the crumbspine. Any um, shout outs? And, and, and if people want to talk to you, you've already mentioned that you're on Discord. Uh, you're in my Discord. So I, I appreciate. You know, you're you're very active. You. Uh, this has been an awesome chat, by the way. Is there any people you want to shout out? People you like, or clubs, or like, where can they find you? Um, I don't have a social media presence because it. I don't think it's good for my mental health. Um, I would encourage people to think about if it's good for their mental health. Um, but Discord, yeah, you're always free to get in touch with me. I'm in the AOS Coach Discord. Um, I'm in the Honest Wargamer Discord as well. Those are my two main Warhammer Discords. Um. For shout outs, I think just uh, the Nine Inch Fails team, they're my team. Um, there's people like Dom you've had on talking about Trogs, um, Phil Springers, who's a great KO player. Um, you know, all of those guys. Abade, who's like the team captain, who's played for Finland. Just loads of great people. They're just the loveliest people in Warhammer. Um, really good looking as well, like the best looking team, if I do say so myself. Um, and otherwise, you know, um, just Owen Jackson for being my Warhammer dad and teaching me etiquette phil marshall for like being in the local club and inspiring me to start doing events um and if i haven't mentioned you i'm sorry but i love you other people <laughs> oh we love you but you honestly this has been so such a great chat i i think we could talk for an extra hour or two but you have work i have dinner to make my dog has been pacing around for the last almost three hours wanting my attention so everyone thank you so much for, for listening to our discussion i hope you are feeling uh inspired and 
whether you are someone who is trying to understand how the shark meta is working and should you get into the deep end and, and buy all the sharks, or if you're someone trying to counter it, or if you're trying to look for inspiration around turtles and eidolons and thralls and reavers, I think we've given everybody something to work with. And as the meta shifts, some of the things we said will be more important, some things will be less important. You know, the Dawnbringers is, is changing up the, the meta constantly. So um, just because we didn't talk about your favorite unit right now doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means if I was going to a tournament, it's probably not the, the the units that I would take right now. But um, Hazel, thank you again so much for your time. I hope everyone enjoyed it. You know the deal. Like, subscribe, leave a comment. And um, who knows what Dawnbringers and uh, fourth edition and whenever it comes out brings to our fishy friends. It's a great time to play Warhammer, get out, have fun, uh, play the games, experiment, try different things and, you know, have a great time. And thank you so much, Coach, for having me. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks for hanging around until the end. I hope you enjoyed that video and you walked away with a few new ideas. Now, if you did, I would love it if you press like on the video, as well as left me a comment with your thoughts. The conversation will continue over on Discord, and the link is down below in the episode description. I also want to give a massive shout out to the AOS Coach patrons and YouTube members who are supporting the channel and the growth that you're seeing here. So cheers, you are all bloody legends. And until next time, don't roll a double one on a spell cast.